As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. Robert Lawrence Kuhn is a veritable truth seeker, and much of the modern proliferation of analytical and intellectual discourse in video form, into consciousness, into the origins of the universe, into the relationship between both, is due to his wonderful series Closer to Truth. It's likely that you've seen his show many times, and even if you can't place his name, Robert Lawrence Kuhn, you'll likely be able to place his face. This episode is a dive into the nature of truth. So for example, how do you know if you're getting closer to it if you can't define it? As well as faith, as well as logic, as well as God. If you're new to this channel, my name is Kurt Jaimungal. I'm interested in what are called theories of everything, which is a physics terminology. It means the unification of gravity with quantum field theory, but it also has other philosophical meanings. And so I'm trying to explore the variegated theories of everything because there are about 200 or so. If you enjoy seeing conversations like this and you would like to hear slash see more, then please do consider supporting at patreon.com slash Kurt Jaimungal. The next 30 days will be quite the unconscionable slog for me because I'm interviewing Chris Langan. That comes toward the end of June. Now, Chris Langan is the person who has been characterized as having the highest IQ in America, and he has a theory of everything called the Cognitive Theoretic Model of the Universe. That's for later in June. Later in June, as well as Rupert Spira, Daniel Schmattenberger, if I'm pronouncing his name right, in this month, May, I have Chomsky coming up. Bernardo Kastrup and John Verveke are coming on again for round two of a theolocution. At the end of May, I'm also speaking to Stephen Wolfram on his theory of everything, as well as Louis Elizondo on UFOs. There's also a secret project being planned with Yoshibak, which I think you may be extremely excited for. All of this takes a tremendous, tremendous amount of work because what I'd like to do in these podcasts is not give an overview, but instead to go deep into certain subjects. And that requires me to read their papers. And sometimes Chris Langan's, for example, is extremely oblique and opaque, at least to me, which means that studying for it is... Well, it's difficult as well as Rupert Spira is going to be quite a challenge. I try to over-prepare for virtually each topic except UFOs because UFOs is one that I'm wholly unacquainted in. So most of the time when I'm speaking to someone on the topic of aliens or UFOs, I'm speaking as a beginner. For example, to Kevin Knuth or to Jeremy Corbell and to a lesser extent Avi Loeb because that was more physics-based. We also have a PayPal if you're more interested in that. And in fact, more of the money, the percentage-wise, goes to the creator, that is me, if you donate or support using the PayPal link. That's in the description. 
thank you so much. Thank you, regardless of your decision. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You don't generally say yes to interviews. I was wondering why you said yes to this one. At least interviews not about China. I think we, we've we've had a a change with the internet. Uh, Closer to Truth has had a, a spectacular year. Uh, some of it energized by, of course, the lockdown, but it's been continuing at uh, on our YouTube channel, a fivefold increase um, over the last year. And we've appreciated, and I've appreciated the thousands of comments that we've had uh, for Closer to Truth. And a lot of them have asked, uh, you know, they like my questions, but they'd like to see some of my answers. I do some um, uh, commentary on our shows um, with interstitial commentary and an open and a close, particularly a close. But on the vast majority of our interviews, I'm just literally asking questions. So a number of an increasing number of, uh, of uh, viewers uh, for Closer to Truth uh, YouTube channel have been asking for my opinion and things. And, and a number of people have asked for interviews. So I've sort of changed our policy. Uh, we've had a uh, kind of a laser focus on producing Closer to Truth. Uh, I've been doing this for 20 years, um, uh, but uh, really nonstop since 2006 when uh, Peter Getzels uh, uh, joined forces with me as an award-winning uh, director, producer, very knowledgeable about science. Um, and since that time, it's been it's been a, a, just a tremendous, exciting um, productions and then doing shows. And so that you know, all of my energies was devoted to that. Um, and when we produce a show, when we produce the interviews, they're pretty much raw interviews, much like this. They're shorter, focused on an individual question will last will last for seven to 10, 11 minutes. Uh, and then it's on to the next. When we work with an individual, uh, such as you've had Donald Hoffman or Avi Loeb, uh, we might have a session of 10 or 12 or 15 of those um, eight to 10 minute segments. And that's what we do and we post those. Uh, but then when we do our actual shows, Peter and I spend an enormous amount of time uh, worrying about every frame and every word and to get it, get it right. Um, and so that's been totally consumptive. Um, and so I, I, I wanted to devote all of my energies to producing the best thought and the best uh, presentation for, uh, for the topics that we deal with, which I'm sure we'll discuss in great detail. Um, <clears throat> but as I said, in the last year, because Closer to Truth has now been using uh, the YouTube channel and has broadened itself internationally because we were on PBS television for 20 years. Uh, obviously, our focus was in the US. So while when our YouTube channel started, it was like 95% US audiences. And we've been happy to see that percentage drop and drop and drop. And so now we're about 40% US, so 60% plus outside the US um, with um, some very significant um, demographics uh, in, in just very broadly in the world. And so all of that has contributed to kind of a rethinking. And so I, rather than um, just focus entirely on producing our shows, uh, wanted to respond to the, uh, to, to the times and to our audience uh, to really get behind the scenes and, and just, uh, you know, see me as a kind of a normal person who has the same kinds of questions and interests that uh, many of our audience does. And so that's why I'm, uh, I'm pleased to do it. Obviously, we screen and 
and I think the professionalism by which you and some others uh, have uh, have brought to uh, questions involving science, um, each with its own particular orientation, which is fine. Um, I, I would look, and Peter and I would would uh, analyze uh, uh, the um, the compatibility with what we want to do for closer to truth. So there is a level of uh, of uh, sophistication and seriousness. Uh, not that we should take ourselves seriously, uh, but that we should take our topic seriously and uh, and do it without, uh, you know, in a very open manner. And so, you know, we've appreciated what what, what you've done, what you've created, and uh, happy to share our experiences. Well, firstly, I thank you for the compliment, suggesting that I'm even somewhat professional and sophisticated. I wouldn't categorize myself as that. I just for the people watching, Robert's show, Closer to Truth is the highly professional version of this show, the highly high production value. In fact, it's better to say that my show is the low budget version of yours because yours was out 15 years prior. So if you like theories of everything, this podcast, you're going to love Closer to Truth. I recommend searching Closer to Truth. I'm sure it's it will come up and Robert Kuhn, if you search his name, interviews with him as well as yeah, closer, closer to truth, to truth dot, will come up closer to truth.com closer to truth.com is our website and our youtube channel you can search for the youtube channel closer to truth youtube channel those are our two main uh vehicles uh, other than of course the pbs television show which is uh, broadcast on over 200 stations in the u.s are you still producing closer to truth do you have ideas for future episodes yes definitely uh, definitely. In fact, that's uh, we're very excited about uh, um, this year. Of course, we, we've not. Uh, we, we've done post-production for uh, previous productions we've had. We have a new series coming out in in a couple of months. It's it's almost entirely produced. Uh, 13 episodes. We have 13 episodes in a season. Uh, Close to the Truth uh, works in seasons. Um, that doesn't mean one a year. They'll be buried. There might be one a year, it might be three a year. Normally, it's about one and a half or two. Uh, 13 episodes, um, and we've done 20 ep uh, 13 um, uh, episode seasons so far since our first, since the new version of Closer to the Truth began broadcasting in 2008. So we've had 20 seasons of 13 episodes each. Actually, the last one was 10 episodes. And the new one coming out, which is season 21, will focus on scientific breakthroughs. And we've, um, we've shot extensively at the uh, Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton and uh, the Santa Fe Institute in Santa Fe, New Mexico on complexity theory. Um, and have some just wonderful interviews. Uh, for example, uh, um, uh, Edward Witten, uh, who we hadn't had before, the leading string theorist, uh, very extensive interviews with him, uh, and just a whole number of, of, of terrific uh, people uh, uh, at the Institute, uh, Karen Ullenbach, uh, Robert Digraph, um, our old friend Paul Davies is with us, uh, V.S. Ramachandran, uh, Antonio Damasio, uh, in areas of scientific, Len Mladen now. We really have a terrific season and we focus on scientific breakthroughs in physics and scientific breakthroughs in biology. And we break it into two parts. One is the concept. What is a scientific breakthrough in physics? What, what, what is, how can you account for it? What does it mean? What kind of step function is there in understanding the concept of breakthrough? Um, 
And secondly, what is the process of breakthrough? So we have one whole show on what is a breakthrough in physics, then another one, what is the process by which a breakthrough in physics occurs? Then we do the same thing in biology. Um, those are two, uh, uh, so a number, about six of the shows in the new season will be on scientific breakthroughs. Then we have some really diverse and interesting subjects. So one is on deception. So we have some of the leading theorists on the concept of dece uh, deception, both in the animal kingdom and in, uh, and in human beings. In fact, one show was on deception in animals, one show was on deception in human beings. And then two on uh, music in the brain, and then one on uh, transhumanism uh, and uh, what does it mean in, in, in brain science. So that's our new season coming up. Um, it'll be broadcast on PBS, I said, within a few months. Uh, starting. Um, I should mention, though, that the first two episodes in the new season are a tribute to Freeman Dyson. Right. Uh, Freeman was one of our uh, early um, contributors and enriched our show enormously, and we very much appreciate it. And so Peter Getzels and I put together a, a two-part tribute, uh, working with his family. And so we have a lot of inside photos and, and ideas. And then most of the show, of course, is Freeman's own ideas. Um, and um, uh, one of them will, will deal with his views on, on physics, which is natural. And the other is sort of a broad, his broad approach to, to a lot of other things. So it's a very exciting opening to the new season uh, on, on Freeman Dyson. Um, then going on from here, we've used the last year to look to the future. Uh, and we have a, a, a pretty exciting backlog of production, uh, which are fully funded by um, uh, excellent foundations with whom we work, uh, the John Templeton Foundation, the Arthur Binding Davis uh, Foundation, um, the Templeton Religion Trust, uh, Templeton World Charity Foundation. Um, and so these series coming up, um, and in no order of importance, uh, because they're all important, like which of your children are the most exciting. So don't don't take it like the first one I mentioned is most important. But I just want to mention the ones that we'll be doing uh, productions in the future. The first is the global philosophy of religion. Uh, and this is a, a very not just exciting, but we believe an important uh, um, uh, project that is run at the University of Birmingham in the UK, um, run by um, a Closer to Truth contributor and one of our closest uh, 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 allies and colleagues, Eugene Nagazawa, who's uh, uh, originally a philosopher of mind and has become a leading philosopher of religion uh, and really a, a, a wonderful philosopher and, and thinker. Uh, we worked with Eugene actually almost 10 years ago in producing a series of programs on alternative concepts of God, which are which were different ideas than the traditional uh, Judeo-Christian Islam uh, monotheism. Um, and those were very successful programs. Um, and Eugen has put together a, a vision for engaging the world because philosophy of religion really has been pretty much focused uh, on the Judeo-Christian religion, particularly Christian philosophers. Um, and the work that has been done since the Middle Ages in Christian philosophy is really wonderful stuff. Some people in the sciences make fun of these kinds of philosophies, and uh, we can get into that. Um, but uh, 
the contribution that um, Christian philosophy has done over the years to thinking about, about now they do it from their perspective, of course, but the ways of thinking are, are really wonderful and expansionary for human, human development, but it is still Christocentric or Judeo-Christocentric, which is what we Closer to Truth has done just out of expediency. Right. Um, we did reach out to try to get um, non-Christian thinkers, and we have in the beginning, we have uh, uh, Sayyid Hossein Nasser, who is arguably one of the leading Islamic philosophers in the world from from Iran, Persia, uh, tradition, uh, and a wonderful philosopher. And we have lead some Buddhists and Hindus, but it, the skew was very much uh, toward a Judeo-Christian. And so when Eugen had this project to really engage the whole world in, um, in, in this endeavor, in, in terms of expanding the thinking in philosophy of religion, we jumped on and uh, we said and, and worked together with Eugen and the John Templeton Foundation. We have it fully funded. So our first uh, program in this regard is actually going to be an online conference, which will occur in June as a conference. And then thereafter, we will have about 20 interviews, maybe more panel discussions, keynotes that will deal with the global philosophy of religion. And we will deal with obviously um, uh, Islam and Hinduism, but we're going to go broader than that. We want to do uh, uh, a Sikhism. We, we are doing Sikhism and uh, uh, African religions. So we have a very broad diversity of ideas. So Global Philosophy of Religion is uh, one project for the future. Next year, we'll be in Birmingham live for our typical Closer to Truth um, um, uh, productions, very, very high quality. Shows will take a year or so to get out on PBS and then YouTube. Uh, it's a long process that we have, but, but we love it and we're dedicated to it. Other, other uh, uh, series coming up are Philosophy of Biology, which is, will be our first foray into uh, biology in a very serious way, and it will become a, a new category for Closer to Truth. Right now, Closer to Truth classically has three big categories. Cosmos, which deals with cosmology, astronomy, physics, mathematics, um, Consciousness, which deals with brain, mind, diverse intelligences, a uh, little bit ESP once in a while, uh, um, uh, alien intelligences, uh, um, personal Alien identity. intelligences, as in <laughs> yeah. UFO aliens or just extraterrestrial no, life? What would they be like? No, but, but, you know, astrobiology, basically, and thinking about what the nature of alien intelligence is. Um, uh, we deal with uh, pers how, how does personal identity uh, be maintained. Free will has been a major topic mm -hmm. that we've dealt with. That's our consciousness. And then our meaning category really is philosophy of religion. Um, and it, it, it heretofore has been somewhat, as I said, uh, Judeo-Christian centric. And so what we're looking to do is expand that category, meaning. Uh, and now with philosophy of biology, which is one of our biggest grants and one of our biggest productions uh, contemplated, that'll become a new category of closer to truth called life, which we will develop develop in the future. Um, other series coming up are a continuing work on art seeking understanding. And we will, uh, we have a wonderful opportunity with the Arthur Binding Davis Foundation in terms of Eastern traditions, which will focus on Buddhism and Chinese philosophy, or Confucianism and Taoism, uh, with big focus on Buddhism and how those, uh, those uh, uh, religions or traditions deal with the big questions. This is not 101 religion about telling about these religions. That's not our job. 
we're going to focus on what are the big questions that Closer to Truth asks that we have traditionally approached from a Judeo-Christian point of view, yeah. and how do these other traditions deal with those same questions? So we got we got a long future ahead of us. We just got to keep healthy. Robert, just so you know, if I ever look angry, I'm just thinking. That's my thinking face. I'm sure you're familiar with it. I don't mind. Okay. I don't mind anger. I, I, what I what I mind is passivity. Uh, you know, whatever I do is fine. But no, I, I like anger. You know, get angry at me. You know, tell okay. me I don't, I don't know what I'm talking so you, about. All right. You mentioned that one of the reasons <clears throat> you stayed or steered clear from Eastern traditions before was expediency, and I'm also wondering if it's also due to the level of unfamiliarity that we in the West we grow up with. So, for example, if a Western philosopher thinks that the jump from analytic philosophy to continental is huge. Try continental slash analytic to Eastern philosophy. It's a completely <laughs> different base. It's almost right. meditative right. and experiential and requires special knowledge, insights that you glean that you right. can't necessarily right. share. So is that another reason why, or is it purely expediency? I, I think, well, I, 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 expediency is not a term I would use uh, because going in, we wanted to do it. We wanted to get first-class philosophers, but in our in our um, limited production, because we weren't using internet where we could interview anybody anytime. We were doing, and we do it close to very high production value um, um, videos and television that are the the equivalent, uh, as we say, of Toyota commercials. And so we like to get crews. Peter gets directors of, of photography and cameramen between their Toyota commu uh, commercials where they're paid at, at rates, where they're they off time, they'd love Closer to Truth, so they do it at scale. And so we can afford it, but still very expensive. And we have crews of you know, 13, 15 people, three cameras, dollies, jibs. I mean, it's a big effort. And so the only way we can do that efficiently is to, um, uh, is to sort of uh, a gang tape within a week, we do 15 because people are gathered at a conference and the kinds of conferences that we've had uh, because they've been limited have been Western oriented. Now, a lot have been physics. We work very closely with an organization called FQXI, Foundation Questions Institute, uh, which deals with sort of over the horizon physics and cosmology with some of the leading uh, cosmologists and uh, quantum physicists uh, physics lo looking at um, the, the foundations of quantum mechanics, looking at uh, new ideas in cosmology. Um, and so that's what we have done. And it's just that in none of those venues that we've had would Eastern uh, philosophers uh, at a first grade level come up. Now, you bring up a very important point in terms of the experiential aspect of Eastern philosophy, because we have a uh, kind of an operating framework on Closer to Truth that experiential um, work is something that we can refer to, but it's not our core. Because you can't so, share it? Because it is it is difficult for third party verification. You know it internally. So we, we have had shows and efforts saying why an analytic philosophical approach is not sufficient. That's a fair comment within the thing. But to then adjudicate between uh, large numbers of, uh, of, of, of people in, in particularly Eastern traditions, but also in Western traditions who have experiential understanding, and that's part of their, their core, 
we have determined that's not within closer to truth's orbit uh, to deal with in detail. And so that's probably a um, an unintended skew why we have not pursued Eastern religions as much as we should, because in Eastern religions, there is more of that experiential internal dimension. Uh, but that excuse is uh, is no longer acceptable to us. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was also thinking if you're mentioning that there's a lack of third party verification, the same could be said about consciousness, but you have a whole series on that. For example, you can't tell if I'm conscious, I can't tell if you're conscious. Sure. Sure. And, and we deal with that very, very extensively as a very important part of the consciousness uh, uh, approach. Look, everybody has a bias. Um, my PhD is in neuroscience. You can see some stuff on the background, remind myself of my early days in, in neuroscience. Uh, so that that's a particular skew that I've had um, in terms of uh, a worldview. It's a scientific worldview, it's a neuroscience worldview, at least that was the germinating aspect of my, of my kind of thinking. Um, so we have, as I said, recognized from the beginning the importance of Eastern thinking, and we have had right from the beginning, like Hosin, uh, 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 Sayed Hosin Nasser, who was one of our first interviewees uh, in 2007, I think, um, uh, but we've not we've not taken it further this year with the expansion of closer to truth globally. Uh, we've recognized that this is this is an issue. So we have made Peter and I have made a, a focus uh, to to uh, put our um, uh, our future approach in, um, in in to reach out. And again, our audiences are now broader, so that they're pushing us as well as rightly they should. When when we get criticized um, in in uh, feedback or YouTube comments uh, that you should deal with Eastern religion. What we now say is, you know, we, we've done a little bit, but you're right. You know, that's that's a missing dimension that we have and we're going to we're going to fill it. And we're you know very pleased, coincidentally, um, that uh, that Yuchi Nagazawa has put together this remarkable global philosophy of religion project, which is you know very broad, setting a three year project. It has uh, three specific uh, content areas. The first is on the existence and nature of deities. And that was the first of the three big areas. And that's what our first conference, online conference will be. It was supposed to be in person, uh, but we've now transferred it to online. The second conference will be on um, death and immortality. So that will deal with consciousness kinds of issues. And the third will be on problem of evil, suffering in the world, those kinds of things. So those are the three categories uh, to, to take a global philosophy of religion. And we're doing the first online, the second we'll do in person, um, and hopefully we can do something with the third as well. And that, that will really uh, broaden closer to truth where it should go. So th thanks to Eugen and uh, John Templeton Foundation for their, their project. And, and Eugen's project has, is much broader than these, just these conferences. They have research projects, they're gonna do books. It's, it's, it's a big effort. Uh, to create really a new field of global philosophy of religion and reaching out to, as, I said, as I've said, African philosophy, uh, uh, Sikhism, uh, Shintoism. We have a, the leading Shinto philosopher. Eugene's going to have to translate on the phone, uh, but we didn't, we didn't want to sub-optimize by getting a, uh, a philosopher who speaks fluent English. We wanted to get the best philosopher. Right, 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 right. 
And so in for Shintoism, uh, the individual doesn't speak English, uh, and so usually will we'll, uh, we'll translate. He promises me not to put any of his own ideas in, but to translate honestly. Robert, how do you and Peter, besides, let's say, technical logistics, how do you prepare for each interview? Um, the way we do Closer to Truth normally, we, and then I'll describe the, the last year where we were doing it online, is that we have to have a generally minimum of five days and maximum probably of seven in which we will go to a location. Uh, for example, we've, we've done with FQXI, we did it in uh, Vieques in Puerto Rico, we did it in Iceland, we did it in, uh, um, Iceland was on cosmology, uh, Vieques when we did FQXI was in information theory, uh, and in Banff, Canada, which was the last one we did, was on uh, physics of the observer and the physics of what happens. Basically, it's the foundations of, of quantum mechanics. So l let me just describe that in Banff. In Banff, they had, uh, I don't know, 80 or so physicists who came to this event. Um, and we, we picked about 15, uh, 17, 15, who we shot within this six, five, six-day period. Uh, we did some on location. That's quite a hectic schedule, and man. Congrats. It's it's very hard, and it doesn't happen easily. It's like Peter boot camp. It, it's a very intense uh, uh, seven, eight days. The Navy has something called Hell Week. That sounds like hell seven. No, it's 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 really, I mean, it sounds like hell. And, look, and if you looked at our faces and our attention, it, you'd think we were we were miserable. But this is the, this is what we love. This yeah, is our I understand. life. We, it is uh, it, it is terrific. And so we'll know in advance uh, six months that there's that plan. And then Peter and his team will start working with individuals who we've targeted and make a schedule. Uh, in general, we'll do three people a day. Sometimes if they're very long, we'll do two. Occasionally, if they're shorter, we might do four a day. And these days are 14, 16 hour days, especially for the crews. It takes them an hour and a half to, to set up. It takes them at least an hour to, to, uh, um, uh, to, to break down the set. Um, and in between, we probably have 10, 12, 10 hours of, shoot, of actual shooting time. Now, what I do when I know those 15 individuals I'm going to have, I will have you know, at least a, a good solid two months of prior preparation where I will uh, ask each of the individuals uh, with whom we're interviewing to send me their papers. Um, and I will go through those papers and kind of structure it in my own mind, how we see the shows approximately, because everything, we want to get as much material in the production as possible. And then later in the post-production, we decide what makes the best shows. Uh, but we have the raw material for our actual interviews. And then prior to each interview, I'll send an outline of topics to the individual and say, this is what we're talking, not specific questions, but, but rather here are the topics we'll be dealing with. Did I leave out anything? Something you want to discuss that I haven't mentioned? Um, and we get that. And then I have that, that outline. Um, and so I, I have to go into each interview feeling, uh, I, I should put it this way, fooling myself to think I know almost as much as that person does about his or her topic. Um, and, and if I have that, then, it, then the conversation is more natural. Mm. Um, and, and that I, I so I, I prepare very uh, much for each of these interviews. And that's, again, a part of the fun for me is really learning and understanding and then trying to relate 
what, how that person thinks and the ideas to the big questions of closer to truth. Um, because that's our core. We have this, these big sets of, uh, of big questions, and we want to understand those questions, which are questions you know, all humanity has, um, and we want to understand that from diverse perspectives. Hmm. Do you get people emailing you their variegated theories of everything on consciousness or physics, and how do you deal with that? Do you welcome yeah, that, it, for example? That's, that's a very good question, and... Uh, uh, I, I really appreciate when uh, people write to us in general. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's much appreciated. I, I, I read everything that comes in directly into closertotruth.com. And I certainly skim through the large majority of the comments on YouTube. There are obviously so many now. <clears throat> and, and I've tried to respond to many of the ones that come in directly. Uh, and uh, over time, uh, there have been an increasing number of people who have their own theories. Um, and uh, I'm, you know, polite. Uh, and many, many times I, you know, I can't uh, accurately adjudicate some very sophisticated aspect of, uh, of, of quantum physics. But, um, it, it, you know, the... Um, the, the fact is, is that if, if um, there are examples in history where people have made radical breakthroughs, which, as we all know, in the general relativity and quantum theory, but, you know, it's not, it's not that uh, frequent. So many of the ideas we get in, um, in the physics area and the consciousness area um, are on the extreme. <clears throat> I, I, I try to skim all of them, uh, you know, never knowing when something, and, and, and even when ideas are, I, I wouldn't say crackpot, I'd say fringe or radical, it, it, it sometimes shows you a different kind of way of thinking. Um, and, and, and that to me is very helpful to, to understand different ways of thinking. Sometimes there are interesting insights that, uh, that, that people have, uh, but I can't, do you no. have an example of an interesting insight off the top of your head? Um, yeah, I, I would say there's one individual, I don't want to mention too many names, who, who has shown uh, with some uh, rather bizarre um, comparisons between number theory and quantum physics, but in his work showed the uh, high level of importance of chaos theory in understanding um, deeper reality for that chaos theory <clears throat> is more fundamental than, than it may seem on the surface, although it is. Um, and, and so that's an example. <clears throat> the mechanisms by which this individual uh, describes the, um, some relations with number theory and, and, and quantum physics you know, I, I, I don't buy and, you know, maybe I'm not qualified to analyze, but, but as a result of, of going through it and seeing the sophistication of thinking, uh, it, it, it allows you to see, um, uh, perhaps see things that you haven't seen before. So when anybody sends something in, uh, I, I look at, I look at everyone. Um, I may not look at it for long, uh, but I do look at everyone and, and on occasion I will uh, comment, um, there is a danger in commenting because if you comment, then you're going to get 
you know, 10 times as much back. And then now what do you do? Uh, right. So, right. you know, the ex the exigencies of life require that I can't be in detailed communication with dozens of people on sophisticated topics. I, I just can't, you know, I have to do some family stuff too for grandkids and whatever. So, um, and it takes quite a bit of time to go through almost anyone's work in detail, even if it's non-academic and fluffy, it, it may take an entire day. Yeah. And, and I, I can't do that. I, I think I've, I've, I've gotten, uh, over the years having done, I don't know, 400 interviews and have read papers by so many people in so many ways, at least in the areas that I'm familiar with, you know, I'm, I'm not putting, uh, um, public policy, healthcare in my list of expertise. But in the areas that I have focused on, uh, on Closer to Truth, I am very, very familiar with the scope of the field and in some depth. And so I can pretty quickly scan a paper in, in our categories very quickly and get a sense of what, what the, the, the point is. Um, and then go further uh, as, as it may be. Uh, I've had two... Um, uh, three experiences in the last year where individuals were presenting ideas that were um, that were not my traditional way of thinking uh, and very sophisticated. And I engage with these people and and consider them now colleagues. So out of the hundreds and hundreds, uh, there are three and maybe there'd be another one if I think hard. But there are three. And curiously, uh, maybe not curiously, all three come uh, uh, pr present from an Eastern point of view. Uh, two are from India uh, and the third is from the Netherlands. Uh, but he's presenting uh, about the concept of, of zero from an Indian point of view. He's uh, very sophisticated. He's not a professional philosopher, but he's uh, he's as good as one. Uh, and the two from India, one is a quantum physicist who has very strong ideas about Vedanta. The other is a, um, a, an artist uh, in the Tam Tamil, tr Tamil tradition uh, who has written books on art and, uh, uh, um, and un understanding art from a philosophical point of view. He was trained as a computer scientist, so he's very knowledgeable about science. He's an artist, and he has written these books in Tamil about art and understanding. And from each of these, uh, I have uh, engaged in serious communication and have learned a good deal. Were there any interviews that you felt particularly underprepared for? Um, <laughs> I, I would say my early interviews uh, with uh, some some superstars, I was, uh, I, I don't know if I would say underprepared, I would say I was uh I was uh, nervous and uh, kind of awed uh, by the p potential of, of, of the uh, experience. Uh, I can, I can uh, drop names, uh, but people on the uh, physics side, uh, Steven Weinberg, um, uh, Frank Wilczek, Alan Guth, uh, Andre Lindy, uh, these are people who I greatly respected and uh, many others in that category as well, just mentioning a few. Um, and intimidated uh, by their work and going in and wanting to uh, to do a good job on the philosophy side. Um, Richard Swinburne, Alan, uh, Alvin Plantinga, Peter Van Inwagen, or just to name a few, uh, very sophisticated philosophers. Um, I've loved philosophy. I study philosophy, but I'm not a professional philosopher. 
uh, nor am I a professional physicist, obviously. And so these I have felt intimidated going in, but uh, uh, but um, but in the process, um, uh, perhaps overprepared, uh, but still felt intimidated. And I got the greatest compliment uh, from one, I won't mention who said it, but one of the names I just mentioned told me after after uh, uh, the interview, he said he felt like he had gone through a second set of PhD prelims, which are when the professors ask you these hard questions about all the things that you do to get you to the stage where you then do your thesis. So you're supposed to know the field uh, at that point. So when he said that, that kind of, uh, that kind of made me feel good. Um, but but, but I, I should tell you that there's not a single interview that I do that I don't feel apprehensive going in because you never know enough. And, you know, I'm thinking with, uh, you know, several, several levels at the same time. I want to engage the individual. I really want to understand it personally myself. And then I want to make sure our audience sort of gets it too. And it doesn't go over their head. And I explain terms that are terms of art if I, if I need to do that in context. So I have to have this kind of multi-level uh, uh, thinking in each interview. But it, it never changes. In other words, I don't feel so confident going into an interview that um, uh, I, I don't feel the tension and the apprehension uh, to really uh, get, it, get it right. Um, and and that's, that's a good thing because, uh, um, you know, this is what I love doing. I love learning. Uh, I, I, the genesis of Closer to Truth is that I want to learn. It's just not like I know the answer and I'm going to tell people. I don't know. I want to I want to experience this and uh, and 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 show my anxieties and uncertainties along with everything else. Uh, you know, one thing I, I do want to emphasize, and, and maybe now just a good point to to describe it. When many people write to us, uh, they say, you know, I really enjoy watching closer to the truth. And the first thing, and then they ask whatever they want. And I said, the first thing I have to tell you is that it's not closer to the truth. It is closer to truth. And this is an extremely important distinction. In fact, when the show was first named, um, which I can tell you that story if you're interested, the suggestion was, it was in a, um, the original name of the show going back 20 years, before 20 years, was called MindQuest. And the subtitle was The Closest You'll Get to Truth. And uh, the PBS um, um, president at PBS station in Orange County at uh, that time KOCE, now PBS SoCal, at that time Mel Rogers, um, said he didn't, you know, he was going to give the show a shot, but he hated that title, MindQuest. And he said, what is it about? And I said, the subtitle is the closest you'll get to truth. And he said, that's it, the closest you'll get to the truth. I said, no, no, we can't say the truth. Take out the, and, and that's the name, Closer to Truth. So thanks to Mel, um, uh, who... Uh, therefore became the godfather of Closer to Truth. Um, it, 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 is, it is that. So Closer to Truth, it's a progressive. And, and, and when we write it, we, we capitalize the two, the T-O, because we want to emphasize that it's a process. And there's, it's not the truth coming out at the end because we know the answer. No, it's a process we all work through together by getting some of the best thinking um, and uh, testing one against the other and, and seeking diversity. We recognize we need diversity, and in today's world, that's even more important, and we're, we're striving to do that. But in our view, the most important thing is diversity of ideas, 
and ideas that are both sophisticated and um, coherent. Uh, you can have a lot of diverse ideas that are uh, incoherent. That's easy to do. And, you know, maybe we have to make that judgment. Uh, but we love diversity in ideas. And that's what we have always strived to do. And now we're working to have more diversity in uh, externalities as well. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Okay, you, you use the word coherence. Now I'm wondering, do you subscribe to a coherence? theory of truth or a correspondence or a deflationary. And when you say closer to truth, you have to be prioritizing one because they conflict with one another. And if what you're saying is we put the, these intellectuals in the ring and let them hammer it out, well, then is it just social convention? Which one emerges as the consensus? How are you defining truth? Okay, so that's a very broad and important question. And uh, the, the first way that I would approach it is to divide the ways of thinking about the word truth. Uh, there is the, the philosophy uh, category, the correspondence theory, I mean, various theories of, of truth. You, know, you need truth makers to make a truth. <laughs> you know, it, it, that, 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 there's philosophical uh, approaches to it. Uh, there's ways that we use uh, truth in common usage. And then there's a way that we use truth in in the common media today, and all of those kind of get um, kind of get mixed up uh, together, um, and so that's one way to look at. It. Another way to look at it is you you can't just define truth without seeking the context for what it is. So many people will say argument is truth rel truth is relative. If you're in one set of circumstances, one thing, and if you're in another set of circumstances, another thing. Or if you have a different perspective on life, death, universe, God, whatever, you'll have different kinds of truths. And they're all sort of um, able to uh, exist together in some meta-truth dimensional sense. Um, the way we look at truth is that uh, we deal on closer to truth with the kinds of questions that should 
I can't say absolutely does, but I would feel very strongly that there is a truth to the questions we ask on Closer to Truth, the, the large majority in cosmos consciousness, for sure, and potentially on meaning as well. And I'd go out on a limb and say, yes. So when all of the topics that Closer to Truth deals with, there, there may be exceptions, that there really is an ultimate truth that is singular and absolute and non-relative. Now, do I expect to ever know that? No. Do I expect to make progress in understanding what those mean? I think the answer is yes, because we're able to ask the kinds of questions and see the diversity of of smart, sophisticated, coherent thinking on these topics, even if they disagree radically on what that answer is, on what that question is really asking. So I would then take your question about what is truth and and limit it to how we deal with truth on Closer to Truth, because we deal with the kinds of questions that should, and I believe do, have an ultimate answer even if it is not possible, even not possible in in principle, to get to that truth. But the kinds of truths that we seek do have absolute answers. Uh, And those are the kinds of questions we want to ask that have to do with, you know, big, big fundamental questions. When you say absolute answers, to me, that's still, there's still quite a few theories of truth that that could qualify for. So perhaps... Tarski's or a realist, not an anti-realist, not a pragmatic, those are more relative, but then there's correspondence and coherence, which could be seen as as subsets of a, of an absolute truth. Well, so which I, one, like how, so how do you I, know I, when you're getting closer but, to the truth or closer to truth? If Here's what I'm wondering. Well, well, one has an arrow and one wants to point it to a bullseye, but if one doesn't know where the bullseye is, then how does one know if one is getting closer and where to aim? Uh, I, I think you, you know that by the, um, it, it's almost a, a, the difference between operant conditioning and uh, Pavlovian conditioning. Operant conditioning, you're just, you're just selecting from the, from the universe of potential behaviors. And I think that's what we're doing. We, we don't see the target, because if you see the target as clearly as you, you've said, as a, as a bow and arrow to a, to a target, uh, I, you know, then, then you're imposing on the nature of truth, your own biases. And we're not doing that. What we want to do is use a a diversity of individuals uh, who we have, we believe, uh, doesn't mean we've got everyone or we're perfect by any means, but to bring diverse, smart, coherent thinking to these kinds of of questions and to to broaden the the category of people that we work with. And again, we're wanting to do that with, uh, you know, Eastern traditions and global philosophy of religion, uh, we need to broaden our, uh, our, our universe of people addressing those kinds of, of, of questions. But at the end of the day, the questions that we ask, I mean, in, in, at its most uh, a fundamental level in, in, uh, in Cosmos is, you know, what are, what is the ultimate um, bedrock um, uh uh, undergirding of uh, of the physical world. Uh, you know, is it quantum mechanics? Is it string theory? Is it something deeper below that? You know, what is it? 
uh, in consciousness, uh, to ask a very bimodal, digital, yes-no answer, does consciousness require anything beyond what we now call the physical, um, uh, physical explanation? Whether it's at the neuronal level, the synaptic level, the intracellular level, or the, or the quantum level, all of that is physical. Does consciousness, can consciousness be entirely explained, and we can discuss what that means, entirely explained in the physical world? That's a yes or no answer. Does God, as we've traditionally called God, a, a, um, a, a being that created the universe that is <clears throat> whose existence uh, is, is, is essence and all of those things, however you define the characteristics, which we could also talk about if you like, um, uh, does that being uh, existent exist? That's a yes or no answer. Now, what the characteristics of it are, is a, di a different one. But on those questions, so it doesn't really matter is that is, is the word God correspond to a being who has those characteristics. <clears throat> that, that is, a, uh, that is a, a helpful approach to understand what you, what you mean by truth. I agree with that. But at the end of the day, the kinds of questions we ask do have a, <clears throat> a, a deep, absolute answer, um, which... Or you're hoping it has a deep, absolute answer. No, no, I, 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 would, I, would, just, I would say there is a deep answer. Now, I may not know it. I may not even be, be able to describe it. But it, however you, you deal with those questions, does God exist or does consciousness require anything beyond the physical, uh, however you define it, in some vague way, whatever, if that's right, then, then that's the ultimate truth. So there is an ultimate truth on how to describe these questions uh, or, or how to give an answer to these questions. I do not hope to achieve that. Um, I think I have come to understand, and I hope our viewers who have taken the journey with us uh, during these uh, years that Peter and I have uh, greatly enjoyed, um, appreciate these questions more than they have. I know I, I do. And I, I thank you know the audiences that have made it possible and foundations that have supported us, as well as my own little foundation. Uh, to, to give us that opportunity, but uh, um, the you know I call it we we luxuriate in the questions, and in that process uh, get a feel for the kind of uh, of, uh, of ambiance that answers would have on either direction, and so uh, you know if God exists or if God doesn't exist is conscious if consciousness is entirely physical or if there's something beyond the physical. You know, are there alien intelligences in the universe uh, or no alien intelligences in the universe? Whatever these questions are that have answers, we believe that we have enriched the understanding, not only of what the, the importance of the category, but also what it would mean if either side of the answer were true. So we wanna show what either side is. Uh, one of the great uh, 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 joys that I've had in Closer to Truth is to see um, uh, 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 Closer to Truth being recommended by both theist and atheistic websites. Uh, and uh, people saying, you know, they may do a little bit on the other side, but, you know, there's some really good stuff there. That's a great compliment, especially because both of those communities tend to be ardently against what 
they're not. So if you're an atheist, you dislike intensely when people talk about or entertain right. theism and vice versa. Right. How do you improve as an interviewer, Robert? Do you rewatch the episodes? Well, obviously you do when you're editing. Are you taking notes? Are you looking at your mannerisms? Are you thinking, well, what are you thinking? That's a great question. And, and, and I think I have a, <laughs> a personal deficit in not doing that. Um, I don't like to do that. Um, uh, and part of the reason, it, I, it's not that I, I'm you know, upset that I make mistakes. So in our raw interviews, uh, Peter and I, you know, leave in my mistakes uh, because we want to make it organic. Uh, in the shows, we'll make it, we, we have a very tight time. So we, we are very specific on how we, we edit in order to tell a story. Uh, but in the raw interviews, we let everything in. Um, I, I guess psychologically, I like to look to the future. Um, I, don't, um, I don't like dwelling uh, and, and seeing what I've done in the past and being happy about it or, or feeling pride or correcting it. I always want to look to the future. So, if I, you know, on my mind right now is the global philosophy of religion, because we have these 20 interviews coming up over the next few months. And, you know, I'm starting to prepare and learn about Hinduism and Islam at a greater depth than I've known before. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and similarly, in philosophy of biology, uh, you know, my background is, is from biology. My bachelor's was in human biology from Johns Hopkins. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm out of uh, uh, not current in a lot of aspects of biology. So I've been really learning about that. And so <clears throat> the, my, uh, my capacity as an interviewer is, is related to my passion for the ideas and my desire to learn uh, in preparation for the interview and to uh, learn during the interview. So it's not that I'm just asking, get my list out of questions. I mean, I really want to engage with that person and understand how that person thinks about it. And once that's done, you know, I'm on to the next. I don't want to reflect back and, you know, I should have asked this, I should have asked that. Um, you know, I mean, there are, you know, mannerisms. Sometimes uh, I'm looking down on people and I don't mean to do that and I need to be told to, to do that. Peter's very good in his uh, directorial activity. He doesn't like my hair uh, kind of nicely combed. He likes it brushed up a little bit, a little bit messy to kind of reflect uh, kind of a uh, kind of a scatterbrained intellectual approach to things as opposed to a, a, a more uh, uh, padded down look. So I'm not sure my hair is proper now. You mentioned that when you're in the interviews, you're trying to be as engaged as you can be. And that's something that, but at the same time, you have to wear different hats because you're wondering about the audience. Maybe there are other factors that you're weighing. And that's something that I struggle with as well. And for better or worse, I err on the side of me being engaged and asking the questions that I'm more interested in, regardless of if they use too much jargon or technical depth, even if some audience members will find it extremely simplistic or overly complicated. And... I imagine that limits the audience and I could monetarily benefit from a larger one and then invest in it so that then later I could go back to my previous style. But it's a balancing act and I'm wondering, what do you weigh and how do you make that decision? So marketing is one, 
your engagement, the answering of your own questions is another. How do you navigate that that process? You know, in one sense, honestly, I don't try to navigate it. I try to be uh, as engaged and pos as possible and have the audience come with us. And many people say that, you know, they don't understand a lot of the shows, but they love watching it anyway. And we'll watch it over and over again. Now, we have many, <clears throat> many people like that. And, and I love that about Closer to Truth. And in fact, it's one of the one of the highlights of Closer to Truth is to see the diversity of people who are engaged. And I've, I've kind of come to my own theory about this, is that there are there is this subset of humanity that really are engaged with these big questions of, um, of uh, consciousness, life after death, how did the universe happen? Why is there something rather than nothing? Is there a God? All those kinds of questions. And that no externality by age, uh, 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 economic level, race, religion, creed, national origin, none of those factors are relevant, I'm exaggerating maybe a little bit, uh, to, to their engagement with, with these questions. Uh, the, the best example that I can remember was a viewer in the early days of Close to the Truth, a woman who wrote in and said, you know, I've, uh, I've uh, only had a high school education uh, but I love closer to love the questions that you ask. Uh, and he said, but I have my husband and I have five sons. They think I'm nuts. You know, one's one one drives a truck and one is uh, one in, uh, is a uh, manager at a warehouse. And they think their mother is absolutely crazy to be interested and watch this this show, this obscure show. And he said, but recently <clears throat> my 13 year old grandson has engaged and has loved these questions. So he and I, my 13-year grandson and I, secretly watch Closer to Truth when my husband and my sons and his father are not around. Uh, and to me, that's a wonderful was a wonderful story because superficially, you would never say that woman and that child uh, were Closer to Truth's demographic focus. Um, and uh, so that that to me is exciting, and so therefore, I don't tr we don't try to reach a demographic. Um, now, as you get bigger, people force you to do that, and so I'm not saying we. Prep, but the the original concept of closer to truth is you know build it and see who comes. Um, I remember when you know Mel Rogers and KOCE, uh, you know more than twenty. Two or so years ago now, uh, said you know maybe we can we can run it and I, I you know I said to him even if you run it at three in the morning and it's only on KOCE I'm excited to do this because I it, it, it was the passion of the ideas and the opportunity and if people watch it and when they do and, and now you know we have terrific numbers uh, all over the world on. Closer to Truth YouTube and Closer to Truth.com. Um, you know, that that's a that's a, um, a a great satisfaction. But the satisfaction is not that, oh yes, we were right. No, no. The satisfaction is that there are other people in the world uh, who have gone through the same things that I have and have these same questions and we're sharing it together in 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 this global community that we're all together. And it it transcends all the externalities that um, seem to divide us more so in today's world, that uh, the, the kinds of questions that we deal with, and you deal with, Kurt, 
similarly are the questions that unite us across all different, uh, you know, breaking all different barriers. I've read each of the papers that you sent me, the PDFs. Thank you for that. One sentence that stood out to me, I wrote down, it's a simple sentence. It says, to me, honestly, nothing makes sense. So then that has me thinking, well, well, one, when you said that there's absolute truth, and I'm not critiquing absolute truth, but to me that presumes classical logic. It either is true or it isn't. And then there are various forms of classical logic. So how are you? Sorry, there's not various forms of classical logic. There are various forms of logic, intuitionist, paraconsistent, and so on. So then right. why did you arrive at that? And then also, well, what is it that you believe if nothing makes sense? That's something that I struggle with. I'm also wondering, how is it that you avoid this nihilistic trap of of psychologically home, being homeless or philosophically being homeless? I'll make well, those questions uh, succinct. So number one, you're using a, a form of logic. Why did you choose that one? Uh, okay, um, let, let me let me uh, go back to the to the to the, to the last one because sure 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 because it, I, as I said I luxuriate in the questions um, and when I said nothing makes sense that that was not you know about everything in the world I mean the, when you turn on the faucet the water comes out that makes sense yeah uh, if you, that, unless you <laughs> scrutinize it then you realize but but th 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 this was specifically about you know what is existence. And, uh, you know, why, what, what, what is existence? So you can have one theory that, you know, God is, uh, is uh, a, a, a necessary being and God created the universe. That's one theory. Another theory is that the laws, of, the deep laws of physics, whatever they are, uh, are cosmogenic. Um, pick your choice. There are lots of different ones. And all I'm saying is of all those different categories, none of them make sense. And obviously, one is true. And, you know, that's, that's where, where, where I start. Now, if, if, when you get into the, the classical bimodal logic or the, uh, mm -hmm. the tetralemma logic of, 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 uh, of Eastern traditions, um, you know, I can't tell you I'm an expert in the difference in, in how the tetralemma uh, argument of, uh, of uh, what is it, you know, P or minus P, both both, both plus yep, B yep, and yep, minus yep, B yep, and yep. minus B, and, you know, each, each of those. Uh, I, I think my, my sense is, is that those terms are in, in that form of logic is being used in a, um, in, 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 a, in a blurry way. And that, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, the kinds of questions that we ask have a, a a, um, a digital yes-no kind of answer. Once you define what that ult what that choice is, um, I mean, take the question: Is conscious? Does consciousness demand anything beyond the purely physical world? Now you can you can blur that question by saying, "Well, what do you mean by physical?" And if you have a you know fifth force of nature or a panpsychist point of view or you know does that count as physical or not physical or how do you how do you work that out well that's that's a semantical point about what you deal but ultimately if that's the answer then that answer is a, a, becomes an absolute answer however you 
create that answer even in a fuzzy manner. So um, to, to deal with the question, as I said, the, the, uh, does God exist or a traditional God, or is there is consciousness demand anything beyond the physical? Um, you know, what, what does it mean? What would it mean to have a, uh, a non-bimodal logic to those questions? So if consciousness is uh, physical, it requires something beyond the physical, um, it, it, that's either does or doesn't. But if you have a fourfold logic, it would, it would say that it, 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 um, uh, it, it does and doesn't at the same time, or it doesn't and does, doesn't, doesn't, and both are wrong. Um, and, and that can give you an insight into the complexity of these questions. But ultimately, there, is, there, there has to be some kind of an answer. They can't, you, you can't, if, if, if we're defining the physical world, and again, you can, you can expand your thinking of what the physical world is. That's another set of issues. But if you restrict it to the physical world, and is consciousness demanding more of that? What would it mean to say there's a, a to use the other two forms of logic to that question? That means it does and doesn't at the same time. It 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 it, it does require something non-physical and doesn't require non-physical, and both are true. If that's the case, if that's the case, it, it's hard to conceive. But if that's the case, if it does and doesn't at the same time, the fact that it does. I think would would skew the answer to that it it does because it, it's kind of a possible world analysis. Uh, this is a technique in philosophy you may be familiar with, and it it asks uh, what happens in in every possible world. Now, a possible world is a, an entire state of affairs, so it's not just a, a world like a planet or something. It's it's the it, it's all reality. And a different possible world could be, you know, if there are 10 to the 90th uh, particles in the universe, if one particle is in a slightly different um, um, polarization, that's a separate world. Everything else could be the same. So there's an infinite number of possible worlds. So you ask questions, is something possible, is to ask, is in any possible world, can that exist? Now, there's, this has been used in what's called the ontological argument for God's existence, which basically says, you know, if you can conceive of a God that is uh, maximally everything, uh, you know, totally omni, uh, all, uh, omnipresent, all uh, everywhere, omnipotent, omniscient, uh, um, if you can, all of those things, the maximum possible God, that which there cannot be anything greater, um, could that you don't know whether that God exists, but could that God, could that kind of God exist in one possible world? Yeah, maybe I could. Maybe 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 I'd see in a zillion infinite number of possible worlds. Maybe one of them, that kind of God, could exist. So when you when you admit that, and then you go into that possible world, in that possible world, God is all uh, God is a necessary being. So if God's a necessary being in that one world, then. It has to be, if it's a necessary being, God has to exist. And so you've gotten into a logical trap. Uh, I don't believe the ontological argument proves God's existence, but very smart philosophers have difficulty finding out the, the error 
in the in the argument that I just made, which is the, called the modal ontological argument for God's existence. Uh, it doesn't work for sure. I mean, I don't believe that, uh, but it is a tricky argument. So now what that does is it goes back to the questions we're asking in, in a fourfold logic system. If you have uh, consciousness being something that uh, is both um, fully explained by the physical world and not fully explained by the physical world, which contradicts our twofold logic, classical logic, that would seem to indicate, even with that fourfold logic, that in one of those, one possible world, consciousness uh, does require something beyond the physical, and therefore it, it, it would indicate that, it, that if it is true in one possible world, then it is, then, then it, it is a, true, a truism, even though it may not be in the vast majority of, of, of worlds. Um, so, I mean, that's an argument that I, I would, I would at least, uh, suggest that shows that a, the fourfold logic is helpful in, in, in being able to see deeply into some of these very hard questions. And, and I need to learn more about, about that. And, and, uh, and, and I look forward to, to, uh, to doing that. And, and when we're dealing with, global philosophy of religion and Eastern traditions and the big questions of these two big series coming up, um, we'll, we'll explore that. Um, and, and I think those, that, that uh, complexity of logic enables a deeper understanding of what these questions mean. Uh, but I'm still, you know, backward enough or West, too Westernized to, to think that at the end of the day, uh, it, uh, it, 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 it is going to alter my thinking about the, 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 uh, the fact that there is an answer to these questions within a twofold logic classical system. system. Okay, let's harp on this for a bit. With the twofold logical system, you said it's obvious it's either yes or no, and then you gave a case where it's imagine consciousness both is physical and not physical, but you can develop a logical system where it's not true that consciousness is physical, but it is true that consciousness is physical and not physical. If you put the bracket behind both true and not true, but not true in the singular for the consciousness. And then you said, well, it's obviously true, but I don't, I don't necessarily see it as being obvious because, well, firstly, as a scientist, your whole point is to question what's obvious. So, dispense with the word obvious when you're a scientist. And number two, if you've been emailed several theories about zero, or you're going to be interviewing Indian philosophers about zero, often they have this notion that zero is the same as infinity, and thus it's the same as all possible worlds. And thus, you can see how it can be true and not true at the same time. So I don't see it obviously being the case or not the case only. Yeah, I, um and so, and so as I, I think that I think what what we're doing is enriching the understanding of aspects of of reality, and and that's fine. And I look to be able to uh, to appreciate that better. Um, but I, I don't think you're going to shake me off my uh, my my view that at the end of the day there is there is some description of reality in each of these categories that is the 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 correct and the one that corresponds to to the reality it can be much more sophisticated or complex than i would think now and you're describing ways maybe that's the case 
But if that is the case, then that is the that is how to define it. You also you mentioned in one of your articles or many of your articles that you dislike faith. Now, do you see I, any faith? I, 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 that, that's a, probably a um, uh, slightly mischaracterization. It's not that I dislike it. Um, um, maybe I like it. It's just that I don't have it. <laughs> mm, okay. Okay. So you don't have faith. Do you see any f aspects of faith in the answer that you can't be shaken from your beliefs about whether or not there's one answer to a question, yes or no? Uh, 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 once again, when I'm saying there's one answer to it, I'm not saying that I know what each side of those answers are now. Uh, I am saying that when we define the um, the structure of of the of the answer, there is one way to define that structure, even if parts of it have uncertainty or however you you want it to to deal with it. However you you define that, there is ultimately an answer to those those questions. It is. It, that you can that you can phrase um you know the issue of faith is in a different kind of category um uh you know faith is is a belief in something the evidence maybe of which you don't see um and in various religions uh that is a virtue and i i see it as a virtue and i admire people who have it at doesn't mean I think it's either correct or that I uh, want it. Maybe I would want it, but I, I don't have it the way many people have faith. Um, when I'm talking about uh, my b belief that there are ultimate answers to these questions, even if we can never even define what that is, uh, I, I don't think that that's a, 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 a I wouldn't characterize that as, as faith, although it's, it's, it is part of my belief system. Um, and, you know, happy to question it. I'm not coming at this from a theist's point of view or an atheist's point of view. I'm just playing devil's advocate. When it comes to faith, I hear people say many times that they don't like belief. They don't like faith. Now, I'm not saying you didn't, you said this, and I apologize if I misquoted you. But no, when okay. people say faith, faith is actually manifold. There are I think on the Stanford Encyclopedia, there's there's doxastic venture, non-doxastic venture, special knowledge, hope, belief, affective so confidence, trust. And sure. then when someone says they don't have faith, well, do you not have trust? Do you never have confidence? And then when someone says, well, I only trust what I have evidence for. Yeah, but you're presuming what evidence counts as. So let's say someone from the Eastern tradition would prioritize experiential knowledge, but then you, not saying you, sorry, I'm saying one, may prioritize yeah. scientific verification. Okay, but you've just slipped the question because you've just, I've asked you, do you have faith? You say, I only believe what I have evidence for. Well, what counts as the evidence? And then you have a, an assumption there as to what is accurate evidence. So what do you say to that? Yeah, I, look, I, I think those are all very legitimate questions. We've been dealing with that on Closer to the Truth because a lot of people will ask us to interview X, Y, and Z person who are people of uh, of spirituality in various traditions. Many of them are from Eastern traditions, but also in, in Christian, uh, Judeo-Christians uh, who are messengers of, uh, of uh, experiential uh, truths. Um, and we're... 
we're not saying we reject that. We're saying that that's just not part of the way we we uh, we address these questions, but recognize that those are answer that those are approaches that many people feel are not only um, legitimate but are more legitimate than the quasi-analytic scientific approach that we have. I, I, I distinguish, by the way, between scientific method and the scientific way of thinking. And um, I do not believe that all truths of, of significant nature are accessible by the scientific method, which is experiments or observation, repeatability, testing, etc. Um, I do not think many of the questions are susceptible to that because science, the scientific method, has a physicalism um, foundation. And so anything outside of physicalism would not be subject to the scientific method by definition. So none of these questions can really get at if there is something beyond the physical world through a scientific method. However, that does not um, free you from a scientific way of thinking. And a scientific way of thinking has to have um, a, a logic built into it and has to have knowledge of the, se- of the sequence of the flows of your argument. And I am, I try to be very rigorous about putting people to that test. Uh, and this particularly would be in philosophy of religion to theists or, and even to a- atheists. Um, and, and forcing people, if they want to take me to a belief in God or <clears throat> belief in cosmic consciousness or idealism or something, um, I, I want to see the progression of steps that goes from what, what we all know with third-party verification that we all can agree upon and to their conclusion. And in virtually every case, there will be gaps in the logical flow because you can't go from a scientific method of understanding the world to getting something outside of, of, of what the scientific method can access. You can't do that. That's just, that's just self, self-contradictory. And so all I want to do is to point out where those gaps are and how those gaps are, are, are bridged. It, and and, that, and that's a very f- a fair and a legitimate and coherent kind of analysis is to go uh, from <clears throat> what we all can agree upon <clears throat> to questions about the existence of God or the nature of consciousness um, or life after death or whatever um, as, a, as a belief. But I want to see when you're making those, those jumps over that you're, that you're leaping over uh, a, uh, a logical flow. Um, and, and then we point those areas out. And you're entirely um, um, justified in making those jumps. But I just want to be sure that we're all aware that they are, because many times people make those jumps and are not aware of it. And that, to me, is not acceptable. So, you, and if you want to use faith or you know, the inner experience that you've had with, uh, you know, with your religious belief, that's fine. I just want to know where in the sequence of steps that's occurring. And then we, we really have a deep understanding of what that, that process is. Um, and if you want to call that faith during that time, fine, but I want to see where that's occurring. So then we're all on the same sort of logical uh, flow, logical timeline uh, together. But by 
seeming to be so, you know, scientific way of thinking or analytic philosophy, I want to be clear that I do not reject at all the those who use other ways of knowing, experiential, religious, um, as coming to what may be true. I don't. I do not reject it. I just want to be very clear where those gaps are being uh, 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 leaped, uh, leapt, uh, and uh, and the um, and to acknowledge those. And to you know, call that faith or call that whatever, but just to see the sequence of thinking from you know what we can all agree upon to what your conclusion is, which we may not agree upon, you know how you're how you're going through that process. That's that's what we try to do, and if we can all all do that together, I, I think we will we will have better communications. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories. Does science or the scientific method presume physicalism or give evidence for physicalism? Uh, I, I think this, the scientific method, which is the, uh, the, the way science works, is, uh, is the core way that you understand the physical world. And the, the two are inextricably bound together. Science is the use of the scientific method to understand the physical world. Um, and the, the physical world is the, um, is the substrate by which the scientific method works. Um, and, and you can't go beyond that. You should not go beyond that. The only thing I again, to repeat, is that I, I generalize it from scientific method to scientific way of thinking in order to get beyond the physical world, if there is such a thing beyond the physical world, um, in whatever sense, consciousness, God, whatever, spiritual stuff, uh, if there is, um, to use a scientific way of thinking, because you surely cannot use a, a, a scientific method uh, to, to get there. So I... I would be very suspect of people who try to use a scientific method to prove things beyond the physical world. I think that's that's contradictory. Well, I know that you have a scheduled interview for Bernardo Castro 
I maybe it's unconfirmed, but you're in talks with him, and he makes an extreme, extremely cogent argument that the scientific method presumes no philosophy, doesn't presume materialism, physicalism, or idealism. And what's happened was a grave error where we think we have initially these pixels of perception. I'm seeing you right now, and you see a you see paintings. Well, you can't see the paintings behind you. If you were to look, you would see the paintings behind you, and then we see regularities in our perception, our perceptive field. So we start with these mental states, then we see perceptive regularities, and then we start to make models about them. And then at some point we assume that this exists as an entity in and of itself. And that posits a completely new ontological category. When one, if one is to take scientific modeling seriously, it uses a principle called parsimony. So you want the minimal amount of assumptions. And I, I don't see a flaw with this argument that the minimal amount of assumptions would lead you naturally to idealism. Now, I'm not saying I believe in idealism. I'm saying that I don't see how one can hold both parsimony and physicalism, or at least parsimony and not idealism. Well, parsimony is a is a principle. I mean, Einstein, you know, he has a lot of quotes. So I assume this is accurate. But he said, make things as simpler, as simple as possible, but not simpler. So, you know, general relativity to some people is extremely simple, these elegant equations, and to others it's, uh, you know, it's incomprehensible. Um, and so parsimony is, is great, but doesn't always work. I mean, the orbits of the planets, philosophers and, you know, quasi-scientists in, in antiquity, you know, assumed that there were some wheels within wheels and, and some platonic structures that had all the orbits and the orbits are just not that way they're all based upon some basic principles but they all have their own characteristic so you know simplistic and and and, and parsimony is a very good principle but it is not it, it is not a, a certainty to access reality um yeah i understand all those arguments uh you know i uh, bernardo and and, and we have uh, we're trying to get together we have, Closer Truth has a difficult um, uh, schedule because of our, as I told you, the productions are very, very significant. But, um, you know, next year we hope to be, you know, we plan to be, we will be in the UK and uh, Bernardo will be on. So we will deal with these things in, in great detail and uh, look forward to it. Um, but uh, the, the kinds of arguments that, that uh, you're posing, you know, lead very quickly to, you know, total skepticism. And, you know, I can make that argument uh, as well, because it's, it's the brain in the vat. I mean, anything I'm perceiving and you know, I'm perceiving, you know, through my brain. Uh, that's why I originally wanted to do my Ph.D. in brain science rather than in physics or philosophy or other things I was thinking about, because I had the thought that everything comes for, through your brain. And so if we understand the brain, we can have a, a better sense of, uh, of reality because that's our only way of perception. So we're never going to get around that. I mean, that's that's obvious. Uh, and so from that, you can have all sorts of different uh, derivations uh, of, uh, you know, anti-realism is, is, is an easy argument to make because you don't really have access to any underlying reality in a in a uh, in a direct sense. It all has to be mediated by some sensations uh, that 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 we all have and those are subject to all sorts of uh, all, all sorts of, of, of problems and issues that that we 
are not aware of in our daily life, but in, in, also in different kinds of trauma diseases, they become very obvious. And so any of those arguments uh, are, you know, are, are, cannot be totally refuted because at the end of the day, anything we know is coming from our, is translated into nervous impulses through eyes and, and hearing and other senses. Um, so, you know, I like those arguments, I enjoy them, we can discuss them, but um, if you take them too seriously, I mean, it really ends the conversation. Well, with Bernardo, there's nothing that he says that violates any scientific theory in the least, because you could just take the regularities that we see in nature as the physical law. And then you mentioned, well, simple, but not any simpler. Okay, why? Because at some point it won't work. And then my question is, well, what doesn't work about idealism? And furthermore, yeah, you broke up a little, sorry, broke up a what, so you mentioned simpler, but not simple, but not simpler. Okay. Why not simpler? Right. And the reason is because at some point it won't work any longer. The orbits are, are oblong or elliptical. Right. Okay. 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 That means that there's a breakdown of the theory. Okay. So from what we can tell. Yeah. What's if wrong about me, idealism? No, I'm saying what's wrong idealism with idealism. And also, yeah, can right, physicalism be refuted? be refuted? And then if physicalism nor idealism can be refuted, then the belief in one or the other, to me, seems like a faithful step, which you've eschewed. Yeah, look, I think that's right. We have had several shows on Closer to Truth where we asked the question, is the universe theologically ambiguous? And uh, all of the people we, we speak to don't like that question because to each one of them, the answer is it's not ambiguous. And obviously the theists think it's not ambiguous because God does exist and the atheists think it's, it, is, it is not ambiguous. But nobody liked the idea that it was ambiguous. I like the idea that it's ambiguous. Nobody else I talked to really liked it. I'm exaggerating, but making the point. Um, what does it mean when you say the universe is ambiguous? Just for the audience who is like, what the heck could that possibly? Theologically ambiguous, meaning that can data support both the existence of God and the, and the uh, absence of God? And the answer to me is yes. And the to me, this is not a, a hard question because, you know, I have a lot of very, very, very smart friends and colleagues and many we've interviewed on Closer to Truth on both sides of that question. And, you know, I'm not prepared to say one of those groups are, you know, really missing some very specific uh, kind of data. Um, and I expect when we get into global philosophy of religion and reach out to, you know, Hindu and Islamic traditions in greater depth than we ever had, and, and, uh, and, and Buddhism, uh, that we'll find equally strong views. I, I know we will, of course, that's why we're doing it. So um, I take the view that the data from the universe, the, the data that's fed into our uh, ways of apprehension, both directly in ourselves and through our scientific uh, process over the last um, four or five centuries as science has, has developed, has, um, has amplified both sides of the argument. Um, and so both, both uh, um, theists and atheists have, been, uh, have seen the results of science corroborating their fundamental ideas about how, how things right. work. So people impose their way of thinking on data. But the data itself has to have some ambiguity about it, or else that wouldn't be possible to happen. Now, the, the, you know, the, the, the physicalists would say that's because the other side is imposing their artificial experiential selves onto uh, data and, and, and 
kind of skewing it. And, and the theists may, may say that as well, that they are imposing their, that they believe in God, that this in, inner experience they've had is, uh, is both meaningful and uh, um, certain in their minds. Uh, but the raw data of the universe can be interpreted in, in, in various ways. You know, I've, I've used uh, this different ways of interpretation uh, to, um, to, uh, to illustrate uh, or illustrate that by taking a, a question. Um, are there alien intelligences that are sentient in the way that human beings are sentient? Maybe very different, but are there? And I, I, pose, I, I, I pose it as a twofold matrix in terms of, of uh, are there aliens, such a, sentient aliens, or not? So that's a, that's that's one one axis. The other axis is: Are you a theist or are you an atheist? And I want to fill in all four of those boxes. So if you're a uh, a theist and the universe is uh, is teeming with life, you say, you know, see, God made a universe that had all this alien life. And if you're an atheist, then you see the universe teeming with life. You say, see. God didn't do anything special about Earth. Earth is just an ordinary part. There are zillions of, 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 of sentient life in the universe. So, so you know, atheism is, is clearly right. Now, if there are no other sentient life in the universe, the theist will say, see, we Earthlings and human beings on Earth are a special creation of God, and therefore God exists. The atheist will say, see, there's, the universe is wholly inhospitable to life, and it's only on this random planet that one thing had occurred so that God can't possibly exist. So here you take a very simple case of whether there are sentient aliens or not and interpret it from both the theist and atheist point of view, and neither will change their fundamental position no matter what the answer is. Now, if, if that's the case, if you give me that, then any of these other questions um, will fall in the same category as, as idealism versus physicalism versus panpsychism. Um, and so we can do our best to really understand the nature of each of the arguments to give us a richer understanding of the questions. But, um, you know, I have no... Uh, no uh, not just no, no belief, no hope, that there'll be an ultimate answer. Because I think that's, that is, given the circumstances we have, that it's probably, in principle, impossible. You and I think so much alike, Robert, when it comes to sitting on, on the fence for many issues and, and citing, well, how can you be so confident about your answer, given that there are people who are extremely bright on both sides? And sometimes when I see, I'm pretty sure you get the same feeling. When you look at the comments, most of the time, they're extremely positive and and sitting with ambiguity. But plenty of the time, you'll see people say, these people are obviously incorrect because God for sure exists or God yeah, for sure, sure doesn't exist. I heard someone recently say, religion lowers your IQ. Come on. Why do you think that? <laughs> what makes you think that someone else why do you think the other side says what they do? Do you think it's because they're unconsciously motivated by something malicious? Well, we all are to some degree, but do you, but more than you? And do you think that it's because they have a paucity of the data that you have access to? There's a great quote called, there's a great quote by Cain, I believe, that, that in 
in great controversy, not one side is mere folly. Or only the shallowest of mind would think that in great controversy, one side is mere folly. I tend to subscribe to that. And you seem to be doing the same as well. That's not my a question. Favorite, my favorite uh, critique. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. That's great. And my favorite critique was in one show, must have been something to do with uh, God, uh, within about five or ten uh, comments uh, on YouTube. One person said, yeah, it was good, uh, but Kuhn is, is, is too much a promoter of theism for my taste. And then 10 comments later, it was, yeah, it was a show I learned a lot, but, you know, he's an atheist and, uh, you know, I, he doesn't believe in God and, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to really pay attention. So it was, it, I mean, normally it's a different place, but here was within the same context in the same show. Some people accuse me of being an atheist and some people accuse me of being a theist in, in, a, in a negative manner for both, a, a critical manner. And I took that as a, a compliment. By the way, you used a phrase I don't agree with. I, I agree with everything you said except one thing. I don't think I'm sitting on the fence. Um, and I don't think you are either. It's not a sitting on the fence. It's a very sharp-eyed, uh, tough-minded approach to, the, to, 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 to questions. Now, I could be wrong. And when I'm wrong, I love to be wrong because then I learn. Uh, but I, I, uh, I think of what I want to do as being very tough-minded, very, very critical thinking, and and being able to and and being open-minded in a very real sense at the same time, and being hopeful. I always, I often say that you know I, I fear my hope uh, is swamping my reason, um, and so I'm trying to be careful about that when I when I think. But it's not sitting on the fence. Uh, it, you know, I take these questions very seriously. I have my whole life. The great opportunity to discuss it with many people. I'm enjoying discussing it with you today, Kurt. Um, and these are questions which, you know, all human beings face at the same level. And I think that's an important thing in today's world, too, that we, we all share these, these ways of thinking, um, uh, which, which uh, you know, can go a long way towards uh, bridging uh, ostensible gaps between people. I'm going to match your agreement slash disagreement with another disagreement slash agreement. So I would say, yes, I agree. I'm not sitting on the fence in the traditional sense of being on it. Well, I am in the sense that I'm unable to make up my mind because as soon as I posit one position, I can almost immediately see a, a counter to that position. And it's difficult for in my mind, it's just even when I'm writing, I just see flaws, 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 flaws with almost each side. So that's yeah. what I mean when I say on the fence. And then as for as for you saying that you like to be wrong, I don't think so, Robert. And I'll tell you why. You don't want to be wrong about your wife not loving you or wrong about reason leading you, reason not leading you to truth because your whole show is based upon reason and argumentation leading to some place that's closer to truth. So I wouldn't say globally you care, you're excited to be wrong, unless, please tell me if I'm wrong yeah, no, about I'm that. Wrong on specific uh, topics. Uh, if, I, if I think a certain way, and then I find out that's not correct in some sense, uh, you know, that to me is a learning experience. I, I, uh, I like that. I mean, I, I've had uh, from uh, um, comments, uh, you know, a greater appreciation. I've thought harder about experiential, even though we, we still don't deal with that on Closer to Truth, because I have no way of adjudicating, um, you know, which, you know, the wheat from the chaff and the huge amount in that area. That's just not what we can do. But I do appreciate that that is a consideration that needs to be um, admitted. And we, we, we do that on Closer to Truth, but, but we don't then 
explore that further by testing all different uh, different uh, you know experiential uh, claims uh, that various teachers or gurus or ministers or whomever uh, propound. That's that's not what we would do. Um, so. My thinking on that, for example, has been expanded a, a little bit. Um, and uh, we've talked before about logic, and I would have thought that the classical logic is, is, is the only way, the laws of excluded middle and all of that. Um, but they, they are because a different logical system, particularly you know the Eastern uh, Tetralemma, I think that's what it's called, the four, the four kinds of logic, you know, gives you a deeper insight into, into ways of thinking about deep questions. So um, that's, that's a learning experience. Um, now, how that affects is one needs to consider it. When, when I say I, I like being wrong, it's, I, I, I'm not saying that in a global sense that, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I missed my calling and I, I, I should have believed in God or should never have dealt with questions about God. No, I don't, I don't think I'm wrong about that. Uh, but uh, whenever there is something that, uh, you know, that I learned that was different, I mean, I, I look upon that as, as, as progress. Well, Robert, the reason I bring that up is because I'm sure you see this too. I'm constantly almost unconsciously assessing people of their unconscious motivations. And when I hear people say, I'm sure you see this too, when they say, well, I love to be wrong. Richard Dawkins has a story about this. I wonder, I wonder how much of that is marketing or trying to show one's rational intellectual proclivity by saying, well, look, I'm not guided. I'm not the Catholic church where I say, kneel down and obey and listen to whatever. I actually follow the data wherever it may lead me. Well, first of all, I don't buy that. I don't think that's necessarily true. If the data led you to kill yourself or led you to kill, destroy the world, would you do so? And then if it does, well, maybe you should question your own reasoning. And also when people say they don't like faith or they don't have faith or they don't have beliefs, well, I see that also as pounding their chest or at least pounding their brain in an analogous chest-thumping manner by saying, look how scientifically rational intellectual I am and something I think intellectuals dislike more than appearing to than being irrational is appearing to be irrational I'm questioning when people say, for example you mentioned you don't have faith well do you drive your car and then you may say yes I drive my car okay do you have faith you're not going to get into an accident well my faith is based on evidence okay but but okay I know I'm speaking for you here sorry let me ask you you say that you don't have faith do you drive a car no, no, but you're interpreting faith in a much broader term. What I'm saying, faith is is faith in 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 willing to give um, uh, to allow kind of an inner feeling of wanting there to be a God, uh, and allow that to um, become your dominant belief system. I, you know, for better or worse, I would like there to be a God in the traditional sense. I, that would. I think be pretty pretty cool about uh, the way the world works and, uh, and and what the potential of human beings are in terms of uh, life after death or whatever. Um, but I I'm not I don't have the faith to make that leap between the, that hope and the belief. So I don't have the belief, even though I'd like to, because I don't have the faith to do that. Uh, you're using the word faith in a much broader term, I, and that's not the way I. When I say I don't have faith, I mean faith in that very specific thing to make the leap from what I know about the, the, the world and 
philosophical analysis and everything to an absolute belief in, in, in God. I think I'm using that term in a very limited sense to that. Um, we all have predispositions in our belief system. Everybody has belief, a belief system that's founded on, on principles, uh, some of which are obvious to us and many of which are not. Uh, uh, you know, scientists who say that, you know, philosophy is dead or there is no room for philosophy, it's, it's distorting, you know, they are practicing philosophy, they are giving a philosophy when they say that. When they say philosophy is dead, there's no, that is a philosophy, that is a, 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 a philosophy. You, you may think it's amateur philosophy or bad philosophy, but it is a philosophy. Um, and so, you know, when I use the word faith, I'd use it in, in that context. But if we want to broaden the concept to how we deal with various ways of dealing with the world or with truth, you know, what we're, I, I, would, I, would, I would offer a different way of thinking about it. Rather than using the term faith, I'd use the term belief system. So we all have a belief system which, uh, which operates in the background for whatever we're doing. If we're driving a car, we have a belief system about that. If we're thinking about the nature of consciousness or God or life after death, we have a belief system that we bring to that discussion. Uh, so I think human belief systems is a wonderful topic for deep explanation. And, and that is a closer to truth the theme. We, we deal with belief systems and how belief systems come about, uh, both in all respects, although we have maybe a, 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 a skew towards religious belief systems and how they come about. But these are fascinating conversations. So we had one television show, you know, uh, Religion Without God. You know, what, is, what does that mean? How does that develop? Uh, and That's how interesting. Do deal with it? Yeah. So, so belief systems is, is an exciting way of thinking about it. And I would put the way I would define faith as a small subset of the broader topic of belief systems. Okay, help me out, Robert. So there are belief systems about operating a computer or a vehicle, and, and then there are belief systems about faith in God and so on. Now, what's the difference between one? Why is it okay? Well, why is it rational to have a belief system about driving a car and being confident about one's abilities to drive a car versus irrational to have faith in uh, a deity, let's say, or multiple deities or whatever other religions espouse? I'm trying to find out what's the difference between those. Well, I think it, in the ultimate sense, there is no difference in terms of belief systems being a mechanism by which human mentality uh, deals with sentience and its, and its world. So we deal with our worlds through our belief systems. Belief systems are uh, inculcated by, uh, by your own personal experience, and they're 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 inculcated by the culture from which we live. I mean, one argument against religion, and it's a strong one, is that if you go to the Western world, you know, Christianity is 90% or whatever, and you go to India, and, and uh, Hinduism is whatever the percentage is, 70%, and Islam is 30%, whatever the numbers are. Um, and, you know, did all these people make those decisions on... Uh, in, in a rational sense, well, of course, that's impossible. Uh, if, if that would occur, you'd have a, 
the entire world sort of in every country having uh, a, a similar kind of percentage of people making their decisions. So we have a tremendous amount of, uh, of our, our whole lives are built upon uh, belief systems. Uh, I had an experience, and it may sound trivial, but it was really very meaningful to me. My first granddaughter, when she was, when she was learning to walk, she had a toy that was a walker. And she just was starting to walk and, and she was wanted to get to the other side of the room and she kept pushing into a hammock or a chair and she couldn't, she couldn't get through the chair. She kept pushing. She wanted to get to the other side. She couldn't get through the chair. Okay. And then she slipped and she slipped and she got around the chair. And it was one trial learning. The next time she came there, she knew she just went around the chair. And so when she first saw that she wanted to get to the other side of the room, you just go straight because that's the belief system. If when you go straight, you get there quicker. It doesn't matter if there's a chair in the way. You just go. And, but she couldn't. And then, then the next thing she learned was that if there are things in the way, if you go around them, even though it's longer, it's longer to go around than to go through. Uh, but if you do that, you can get you. you it works. So that, that was a, an example that I saw literally right there where a belief system was being developed. And it was a belief system with how to deal with things in the world. Now that's very simplistic, but I think if, uh, that analogy and that, and that mechanism applies to lots of, you know, gets much more complicated and, 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 and filters everything that we have. And so one challenge for us when we're dealing with these very big questions of uh, existence of God or nature of consciousness, life after death or whatever, is to, is to challenge our own belief systems and to see what are the assumptions that our belief systems are making. And uh, in, in doing this, I think we see broader opportunities and, and, and broader ways of thinking and how other smart people think. And that's what we try to do on, on Closer to Truth. Uh, we try to... Um, understand how presuppositions, we don't always call it belief systems, but how presuppositions and ways of thinking lead to certain kinds of conclusions and what the, how different people make different arguments to get there, but they're all based upon these uh, uh, perhaps um, unconscious uh, kinds of, um, of modules that are parts of our belief system. I think, and that's a good way to think about it, our belief system have these modules in them. Uh, Marvin Minsky talked about a society of minds and in his classic book. Um, and so we have these modules, uh, mental modules that we've had, many of which are unconscious. Um, and to deal with these big questions, I like to un uncover what these, what these mental modules are, which are our fundamental assumptions, and then allow people to come to their conclusions, but to see the logical process uh, that, that they go through. This analogy or this story with the, your granddaughter? Is it yeah. your grand? Okay, yeah. your granddaughter going from point A to B. See, to me, this means that there's a pragmatic definition of truth embedded within what you said. Because the first model is let's go to A and B in a B line, and then the second, and that fails. And then the second is let's go around it, and then you validate the model based on the goal, based on if it gets you the goal, which is a pragmatic theory of truth. And before you were, and pragmatic theories of truth are somewhat relative. So to me, that goes against what you earlier said, what you said earlier about there being an absolute yes or no. Yeah, but, but what, what I, th I think we're, 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 we're using truth just like we use faith in different ways. Truth is a 
one English word, five letters, and has meaning when you bring it, but uh, they're very, very different kinds of, of, uh, of truths. So certainly there are pragmatic truths, and, 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 and they, they can be very volatile. I mean, you know, morality is an absolute or relative, and there's a, you know, a huge literature and a constant battle about, about those kinds of things. Um, when I'm using the word truth, and as we use it on Closer to Truth, the scope of what we're talking about as truth is extremely limited. If you look at all the questions of, of human life and existence and sentience, the kinds of truth that we're focusing on on Closer to Truth are a minuscule subset of all the kinds of truths that there could be. And so when I'm using the term truth, that there is an absolute truth answer to the kinds of questions we ask, even though we'll never get to it, and I'm not here to tell you what those answers are, that's for sure, um, that, that that's a different category. So I will defend the notion that there is an absolute truth about these big questions, even though we won't know that, we wouldn't even know what it means that, 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 uh, that we would know them. I mean, we we don't, we, don't, we wouldn't even know what a verification, how a verification uh, could be. Um, for, for for example, um, one of our our contributors, uh, contributor, less well known but very sophisticated. Sadly, he died. Uh, Bede Rundle uh, from Oxford, uh, who is a very strong atheist, uh, said this. He said, "If uh, I were trying to be convinced to be a theist, which he was not." Um, and I went to a, you know, a shrine or, a, or a holy waters, and I saw a person who believed in God suddenly materialize two limbs that they didn't have. They had no arms, and suddenly they had arms. Uh, and that person said, therefore, God exists. I mean, suddenly, and I saw that myself, and I was sure it happened. He said, I would think it more likely that it was an alien ship on the dark side of the moon beaming special healing rays to that lady, then there is a God. And to me, that, you know, that sounds ridiculous in its sense, but you think about it, that's really profound. Because to this person, the existence of a God in the traditional way is so, um, uh, is so unlikely that even an extreme explanation that he had to explain a certain set of data, whereas everybody else, you know, could, if they saw that, which nobody has, by the way, and certainly in recent times, uh, even no claims to that, um, they would, they would uh, look upon that as, as a, you know, a God-driven miracle. What was that person's name? What was the person's Bede name? Rundle. B-E-D. Bede Rundle. Bede, his first name is Bede, Bede Rundle. You, you can look. Yeah. You can search him on closertotruth.com. Have interviews with him. He wrote a, a very interesting book called "Why There Is Something Rather Than Nothing," uh, which uh, gives one answer to that big question that you know I like to to deal with. Uh, that's one of his 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 works. But he was a very strong atheist and a, and a very good thinker. Well, I find Bede Rundle's argument... Not that I agree with it. Yeah, facetious, or unless he was being purposefully so, or specious at least, because firstly, it depends on how one defines God and their interdictions against that in virtually every religion, especially the Judeo-Christian and Islamic tradition. Second, it so what definition of probability are you using to say that this probably isn't the case? There's a measure theoretic definition 
That's the mathematical no, one. What 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 he what he's what he was illustrating, not facetiously, he was illustrating that that we're so used to definitions of God that we think it it it, it is logic it 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 is a um, it, it is a definition that that is acceptable within the range of probabilities. And what he what he's saying. He was just using it to show from his perspective on a on a de novo basis, uh, just looking at things properly, that the existence of such a being is so extraordinarily um, uh, unlikely. And that's what he was trying to convey, uh, that it's so extraordinarily unlikely uh, ab initio from from first principles, if you if you weren't acculturated as we are. That, that's what he was trying to say. Um, and, and it was it, it's it's a it's a striking um, it, it's it, it, it's striking, and it sounds facetious, but it, it was it was making a strong point that if we were not so acculturated, from his point of view, now some people say that you know the the belief in God is acculturated in all traditions around the world, and everybody sort of believes it naturally, and and uh, and it is uh, a, a a a basic belief of human beings. This is Alvin Plantinga's famous uh, uh, kind of argument about uh, you don't. Need, you know, when I interviewed Al, uh, I, one, of my, one of our segments, we had many, many segments with Al, about 30, I very appreciate that. And I, one of my, you know, these segments, these 10-minute segments were arguments for God. And I said, Al, from your point of view, you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, what, are, what do you think are the best arguments for the existence of God? Uh, that was the segment. And he said, uh, okay, I'm going to give you some arguments, but I first want to say, is I don't think you need arguments to believe in God and that you're fully justified, warranted, you know, honest in your beliefs and, and fully rational to believe in God without any arguments. Now, this, is, this was Al's big contribution. One of his big contributions to philosophy of religion, Christian philosophy in particular, is, is to say that you can be, have warranted belief in God without evidence and without arguments. Um, and that the belief in God is similar to the belief in, in the existence of the past. Like you and I have been talking for uh, now two hours uh, of, of, of enjoyable time. Um, and, uh, you know, did what we did in the first hour, was that real or, or not? Well, you and I both believe, right. the audience believes that what we did in the first hour really happened. But, you know, how, how do we know that? How do we know that for sure? Well, it's sort of a basic belief that we have. And I believe that, you know, I'm sentient in my mind and, and I believe that you are as well, although you could be a philosophical robot and have nothing inside, just have a lot of, uh, of uh, stimuli and responses uh, that's possible. But I believe in other minds. So Al's point of view is that if you believe in the existence of the past and you believe in the existence of other minds, you, you should be able to believe in God at the same level of confidence without argument. Now, one could argue that, Wait, why is that the case? Because belief in God is what Al would call a basic belief that is inculcated into human beings. In the same way that our belief in the past is and so on? Same way belief in the past or belief in other minds. So our, our concept of belief in the past, so he would say the level of, of, of belief in God, that you were entirely justified in believing in God and being rational, etc., um, because it, it is so uh, intrinsic to, uh, to human sentience. 
that's his argument, and, and it's, a, it's a powerful and an important one. Uh, many people reject it, of course, um, as, as, you know, obviously I, I've heard it and I don't totally accept it. Yeah, I don't see but, why, but I know you're not a defender I, of it. I don't see why it follows from the fact that you believe in the past and other minds that you then can believe whatever intuitively comes to you. It doesn't follow from it. That's that's not that's not the, the, the logic. It is the same level of uh, of significance. It doesn't follow from the past in the mind. It just says, with the same confidence level that you have that there was a past, the same confidence level that you have in other minds, you should have that same confidence level if somebody says they believe in God. You don't have to subject them to proving through the cosmological argument or the ontological argument or the teleological argument or mm. you know the fine-tuning argument, any argument. You don't mm. need any of those. Now, you may want to enjoy thinking about those and using those, uh, but you don't need any of them. That was his argument. I see, I see. That you don't need I arguments see, uh, for, for God. Now, again, you can argue that, um, but you know the importance is uh, to understand uh, the, the, the nature of belief systems. Now, Bede Rundle takes that same view exactly 180 degrees opposite. That's why I brought it up. So Pete Rundle said the existence of God is so unlikely and so absurd and so ridiculous to have this concept that if, if somebody is healed, that we, it's a real healing, it's more logical to, to have these aliens in a, in a hidden spaceship having done it rather than God. And, and, and my, my only point is, I really like these two guys. These are, you know, I love being with them. Uh, these are, you know, I, I, I didn't know B. Rundle that well, um, but I enjoyed my time with him. And Al Plantinger is one of the great philosophers and we had wonderful sessions together and I, I, I treasure. Um, but here they are absolutely opposite on this point. I mean, so much so that each makes i can't i can't think of more extreme cases of being opposite where one says belief in god you don't need any arguments for that it's just as basic to human existence as uh, acknowledging there was a past or that other minds exist and another person saying no matter what would happen no matter what evidence you would you could show me doesn't matter what you evidence you would show me. I will never believe that the, the, the cause of that evidence is a God rather than some other kind of explanation. Mm-hmm. And to me, uh, that, that, to some people that would seem terrible to have two smart people so opposite, I think is wonderful. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think it, 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 it's so expressive of the, of the human condition. And these are not people who who don't think about it. These are people to whom these questions are the, the deepest part of their lives. They've devoted their entire lives to thinking about these questions and come up with such diverse answers. Uh, but when, when people do that, when they have such diversity and such sophistication thinking about topics like this, I mean, that's core closer to truth. And that's what we try to bring to, to our audiences. Hear that sound? 
That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. About both of those arguments, I want to tell you what occurs to me. I, again, like I'm just a devil's advocate. I see flaws. So with Alvin's position, what occurs to me is monotheism is relatively new. So if you go back four, even 3,000 years, then would that not be an argument for polytheism rather than a belief in a god? That's what occurs to me. Okay, so that's number one. And then for Bede Grundle, is that correct? Yeah, for Bede Grundle. Yes. Again, he's using, unless he's using the measure theoretic definition of probability, which he's not, because that's actually, you need many, 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 many data points like in the financial world in order to use that. Then he's using a folk definition when he's saying unlikely, which means he's using propensity or subjective or or frequentist and so on. And they're all flawed. So then one, and then you, it also depends on the Drake equation, which runs the gamut from 100% certainty that extraterrestrial intelligent life exists to 10 to the minus 400. You'd be making vast assumptions there. Plus you're making vast assumptions as to what constitutes God. So I don't see why he could say with any certainty that it's unlikely that it's God or it's likely to be aliens. Look, you're you're critiquing both positions, and I think that's uh, that's entirely uh, justified. Um, I, I'm just looking at each one in its own right, um, and and why these people have uh, come to the view that they have. And as I said, I I can't pick more diametrically opposite views, and, and that to me is fun. I mean, these are the most opposite views you can have. One saying, you don't you don't need any arguments for the existence of God. It is properly basic in human psyche. Now you can say that going back that it was uh, polytheistic and but people always had this sense of something beyond themselves. I, mean, I see, I see, I see. A lot of, a lot of that. Uh, but there's something intrinsically basic about this uh, this belief on the one hand. On the other, the other hand, it's just it's so absurd that um, it, 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 virtually any other explanation uh, would be better. Um, th that's just expressing two different views. Uh, both of them, you know, can be severely critiqued, and they are, and that and justified. We, we do that on closer to truth. That's fine. Um, but uh, to 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 posit these two diametrically opposite views is, to me, uh, 
a very rich data point in uh, in assessing uh, human um, sentience and cognizance and and dealing with these big questions. It's extremely interesting. Something that I think you would find, maybe you've thought about this quite a bit. Why is it that these, why is it that brilliant people, obviously that depends on what you call brilliant, but why is it that they disagree when they have access to the same data? And they're not, unless you want to say that they're biased. Now let's remove the bias because well, maybe you can't remove the bias. Either way, why do you think it is that people disagree, like Noam Chomsky versus Peterson, or Bernardo Castro versus virtually all of your guests? Why is it that they disagree? <laughs> is it that they have access yeah, to different data? No, I, I think I think uh, you know we posit they have everybody has access to the same data. Now, each has belief systems which are either unconscious or developed culturally or deliberately manifest in terms of their own their own study as they've had but they bring different belief systems and and that's why you know we've we've run shows and on uh, the universe is theologically ambiguous uh, uh, religiously ambiguous because you're able to take these questions and, and and interpret the data based upon your belief system and i think that itself is a kind of truth which is really important that we can we can agree upon. So we can agree upon the fact that smart people take the same set of uh, externalities, da data, and come to radically different conclusions about the big questions that we deal with. And so that is a truth. And that is an absolute truth. That's not a relative truth. That's a, a, a very clear, absolute truth. That's a, that's a fact of our world. And I think that fact of our world is an important data point in understanding our world. So it sounds like we've made no progress because we've said that uh, some people believe one thing, some people believe another. But I, I would disagree. I would say we have made progress, but, but because we see that these people have made dramatically different conclusions based upon the same set of the data. And these are all smart people trained in science or trained in philosophy or trained in a logical way of thinking and they're coming to different conclusions. So that is a firm data point about existence that you can see, you can come to dramatically different conclusions even though people have the same set of ways of thinking, they're all trained in the same system and they, and they have access to the same external data. And so this is, this is, a, this is a fact of our world and I think an important one. And I think it's one that is not a triviality. I think it's, a, it's, an, it's, it's progress to understand that. Do you feel like you've gotten any closer to truth? So my wife would say that um, she's a pianist, um, not, not a scientist and not dealing with these questions. She said that when we met, which was now, uh, how many years ago? 54, 55 years oh, ago. congrats, man. That uh, she and I were... She, she and I were at the same kind of level of knowledge about things. And now I've done, um, you know, 300 closer to truth shows and 4,000 interview questions. And she says, we're still at the same level of uh, understanding these questions, even though I've done uh, yes. 4,000 interviews and she's done none. And I've thought about this for, 
you know, 50 years and intensely with Closer to Truth the last 20 years, and she isn't, doesn't think about these things at all. And we're both at the same level. And there's a kind of truth in that, uh, in terms of coming to an answer. Um, but I think in reality, um, I have a, a very deep appreciation for the nature of the questions. I'm more excited about them than, than ever. Um, so it's not after talking to so many people and hearing so many theories that, you know, I'm kind of fed up and I've heard everything. And no, it's the opposite. It's just, uh, you know, it kind of luxuriating, as I've said, in these questions and appreciating the, the depth and the passion um, that people bring to them in new ways of uh, new ways of addressing. That's why on Closer to Truth, we will deal with the same question uh, uh, over and over again. For example, why is there something rather than nothing? We call it the mystery of existence. Why not nothing? Uh, what is the nature of nothing? So we've had multiple shows. People can look that up on YouTube or closertotruth.com. Just put in nothing and you'll see various shows that we've done on that many interviews it means put in the actual quotation n-o not put in nothing you won't get anything yeah right 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 n-o-t-h-i-n-g right exactly um uh and uh i don't know how we could code for literally putting in nothing um and then um uh nature of consciousness is consciousness fundamental uh, what is the nature we've done in so many different ways because we have so many different people to speak on these issues and we've not exhausted it as you mentioned uh, bernardo castro we look forward to uh, discussing with him as well um in terms of the uh, of the thinking so it's you know you ask am i closer to truth after all this time i would say no in terms of an absolute answer to questions but certainly, yes, in terms of an appreciation of what those answers would have to consist of, what the nature of it is, what the inner structure of the question would be, what the uncertainties are. Um, I feel that there's a, a very rich sense of that and that that is really getting closer to truth. And uh, we're so pleased to have so many viewers uh, come along with us on this, uh, on this journey. Robert, with all these people you interview, are you able to keep their different theories? Now they're extremely disparate, but are you able to keep them alive in your head such that you can allude to them or quote them when you're speaking to another interviewer? And if so, how do you do that? Do you take notes? Yeah, I, I, um, I don't consider myself to having a you know, spectacular memory. Um, I, uh, I am focused on each interview on that person's way of thinking. And I bring to it my own, um, my own, perceptions of that question. And, and I, I do it from my perspective as, as informed, of course, by everything else I've done. But I, I generally don't try to trade one um, set of opinions against another. I won't, I won't say to one person, well, uh, Alvin Plantinga said, or Richard Swinburne said, or Steven Weinberg said, or Michael Shermer said. Uh, I, I, I don't do that. Don't listen to anything Michael Shermer said. I, I do it from my own no, I'm just kidding. He's a friend. I do it from my own perspective, uh, but again, as enriched and informed by all the conversations that I've had. But I, I try to focus on each individual to try to get the best thinking out of that person by having them, you know, some free association, some probative questions, some some uh, questions to kind of uh, attack or undermine their position just to get more out of them. Uh, so that's 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 what I try to do. So each interview is is, is done on its own, its own focus, not in terms of uh, what other people think. When we 
when Peter Gensels and I put together the shows, then we, we synthesize kind of an artificial architecture where we'll take four to six, generally five people, and, and, and have a series of excerpts, three, four minutes each, and then with some interstitials as we go from one to the other. So we develop a, sequ- a, a, a story. It's, it's artificial and looks like it's you know happening mm, interesting. chronologically, but it's not. It, 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 we develop the chronology, the apparent chronology in the show, based upon a, a, a flow of ideas and argument as opposed to a real, real-world real chronology, which it, it, it can't be. Um, Peter's the editor? Uh, uh, Peter Getzels, he's the, he's the producer-director, and then he has editors working for him, which are wonderful editors. Uh, and and I, I'm very much involved in the, uh, in, in, the, in the selection, so I work together with them on a script basis, but not the visual basis, it's the way the show works. They do all the visuals by themselves, but I'm... I'm I, I, I select every word uh, in, in, uh, in, and then make it has to work as a film. So it's, it's a long and complicated process and it's totally consumptive. When we do a, a show, one show, you know, a little under 27 minutes of, of airtime, uh, it, uh, it is every word, every frame is, uh, is thought about, worried about, focused on my whole world is that one show. And when it's gone, I don't, I don't think about it again. Do you rather these podcasts that are unedited where you just put up the footage online or do you actually enjoy the editing process? It's, it's, it's another expression, which we had, which we, which was not in, in um, my DNA and it was not part of closer to truth until we were forced to do it last year because of the lockdown. And so now we have three expressions of closer to truth. We used to have two. We had our super polished shows, which are our crown jewels, which we're most proud of that, most of them are on YouTube now uh, and closer to truth.com that they'll all, all be up in the next few months, uh, releasing one, one, a, one a week now or several, several a week. Um, and we have the raw interviews, which are these seven to 12 minute sessions of which we have over 4,000, maybe 5,000 by now of these segments. And those are also very highly produced. And now what we've done in the last year is we have the same things that you and I are doing here for uh, your uh, a podcast, Theory of Everything, which is great. Uh, we've done that for Closer to Truth. So we've done, you know, 15 or so uh, uh, what, we, what we're calling Closer to Truth chats. And sometimes we do it live and sometimes we, most of the time we, we don't. And we have a very wide variety of people um you know we did dan dennett and on free will and uh, george smoot a nobel prize winner in cosmology uh, uh jill tarter on uh, alien intelligences uh len milad now just did a book on stephen hawking if someone wants to know when is your correspondence with castrop going to be uh, our plan is to do the interview when we are shooting in the UK next year, which will be in uh, planning for March of, of 2022. And we hope to uh, schedule Bernardo during that period of time, which would mean that the interview would be uh, posted uh, you know, several months uh, later in, uh, in different segments, uh, because when we We'll hope to do, you know, 12 or so segments uh, with Bernardo on different ways of approaching this topic. It won't be, it won't be the kind of interview we're doing here, which is, you know, all straight. It'll be in, in segments and we'll post 
the segments at that time. And then eventually those will find their way into actual shows in which his views will be contrasted with, uh, with others. I'll link to that in the description once they're out. Just please, I'm pretty sure it'll get recommended to me, but if it doesn't, send them to me and I'll put it in the description of this. So if you're listening, watching, it's in the description. Okay, someone named, and by the way, that previous question came from Panda Products. Okay, Andrea S. asks your favorite question. Why does anything exist and how has your thinking on this changed? Hmm. Uh, you know, the question of existence is the, the great question of, of, uh, of, uh, of philosophy and indeed of, of reality. I, I've always said the questions, you know, does God exist? Is consciousness fundamental? How did the universe come about? What about the fundamental laws of physics, life after death? These are all super important big questions, but I call them second level questions. The primary question is why is there anything at all? Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I had a, fascination of this when I was a, 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 literally a child. It scared me so to think about it, and I thought it was unique. And you know, over the years, I found many people have had that same experience, that kind of, that, uh, that, that feeling of, uh, of disassociation where you wonder, what if there were nothing? And it, it, it's a very scary, uh, scary thought. And uh, I've had the opportunity now over the years to uh, develop this very, very uh, much in, in great detail. We've done many shows on uh, why is there something rather than nothing? What is nothing? Uh, why not nothing? Uh, Mystery of Existence on CloserToTruth.com and on CloserToTruth YouTube. Uh, but I have to give credit to uh, one of our early contributors, uh, John Leslie who um, is a, a British-Canadian philosopher who developed these ideas and, uh, and other ideas um, in, in uh, of, developed the philosophy of cosmology as well as the philosophy of existence. Uh, and John was, uh, was a great uh, teacher of mine. I looked to him and uh, very proud to say we did a book together um, as a result of Closer to Truth. It was uh, published in 2013 called The Mystery of Existence. Why is there anything at all in which uh, John was the lead editor and I was the happy to be editor with him. And we uh, picked uh, out of all human history excerpts of the best thinkers uh, from Plato onward uh, to current scientists, etc., dealing with the question, why is there something rather than nothing? And um, it's a very big topic and an exciting one. Um, I didn't and, know Plato had thoughts on that. Yes, uh, I, I mean you could you could read it read it into it where Plato believed that the uh, the good or value was sort of a, a protogenitor of reality that reality exists for the good. Interesting, interesting. Uh, so you can read back into some people are very specific like Leibniz and others. Uh, but others, you could read into their thinking of, of, uh, of uh, why things exist. Um, and I have uh, on CloserToTruth.com or a piece called Levels of Nothing, in which I deal with uh, nine levels of nothing. People talk about nothing. They think they know what they mean. Why isn't there no nothing? But in this piece, I show that there are nine ways that nothing can be described. So there are nine levels of nothing. And what's fun to me is the nothing that many physicists talk about, the quantum foam that takes from nothing, no space-time, no, no matter energy, no, no nothing. Um, and then they, you create a universe out of nothing, which many physicists believe happened, indeed may have happened that way. 
But that to me is my level five nothing. Right, because it presumes the laws and so on. Four levels of nothing less than that in terms of what it is and let people can look that up, levels of nothing on closertotruth.com or, or nothing. But uh, this to me is the most probative question and the most exciting question. Uh, you know, we know for sure there is something, you know, but why that's the case is, uh, is, a, is a wonderful thing to delve into. Neutrino, a commenter I love, says, Robert, I kind of love you. <laughs> he also said, well, Steve Scully says, question for Robert, just because something exists, does this necessarily preclude nothing from also existing? Yes, I think it does. So, some people would, would argue that, it, and, and many people said this, and maybe when you have your tetralemma theory of, uh, of logic, you can have nothing and, and something at the same time. But I, in my simplicity, would say once you admit there is something in one possible world out of an infinite number, then by my definition, there is something. And so once there is something, there can never have been nothing in in the in the big sense so once you admit any kind of something in any kind of possible world in any way you've you've answered the question that there is that there is not nothing uh and that's pretty much uh you know digital on off uh, the way i think about it that doesn't mean if you have something you, it can it, it, it can go back to nothing but if you have something that there will never be the case ever that there was never anything there was always nothing if you had something at one point then there was something last two pj wants to know about your thoughts on ufo sightings encounters it seems to previously be getting laughed at but increasingly taken more seriously and then someone wants to know what your thoughts are on life after death panda products wants to know that so pj what are your thoughts on ufo experiences sightings encounters yeah, uh, we do not deal with those kinds of questions traditionally on Closer to Truth. Uh, I would also put another category, which we're asked about even more often than UFOs, is uh, near-death experiences. Right, great. Panda products. These are not categories we've dealt with dealt with a little bit, um, but these are the kinds of questions that lend itself to kind of factual and technical analysis. ESP and uh, parapsychology is another category that lend itself to these kind of factual statistics. And we don't, we don't do with that. We have done with ESP and parapsychology the implications. So if parapsychology and ESP are true, and we would define what that means in real phenomena in some sense, uh, what would that imply? What would what would that imply about the nature of mind or physical? It's all different. That's a legitimate closer to truth area, but not to determine the statistical proofs or not proofs of that. That's that's not what we would do. I'd put UFOs in that same category. I, mean, I personally would be a skeptic, but I don't consider myself um, sufficiently knowledgeable. And I I have noticed there has been more um, attention lately to those uh, kinds of questions. Uh, you know, they're all multiple answers to that kind of question, much like there is to uh, the Fermi paradox of why we don't see aliens. There are dozens and dozens of possible explanations. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I would remain a skeptic on, on UFOs if UFOs are deliberately, um, uh, I mean, are, are representative of alien civilizations uh, so far advanced. Uh, uh, there was an article in the New Yorker I, I, about this recently, and I, I like the line, it's nobody addresses why they're so advanced that so many seem to crash 
in Area 51 if they're so advanced. But uh, so I'm I'm pretty much a skeptic uh, on that. As far as life after death, um, uh, I, I think this is a uh, this is a closer to truth uh, topic. We deal with this a lot. It obviously has to deal with uh, the nature of consciousness, and if consciousness is 100% physical, uh, then uh, there is no life after death. Um, if uh, consciousness is something beyond that, or if there is a non-physical existence, such as uh, you know, traditional gods or some type of spiritual realm, then there is uh, a possibility of that. Uh, I've dealt with this in a uh, paper on uh, an article I've written on virtual immortality. Yeah, I read that, that one. The, Thank you for sending that. And it's the, the, the diverse uh, uh, explanations of consciousness uh, from pure materialism to epiphenomenalism to what's called uh, non-reductive uh, 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 non physicalism, where it is physicalism, but there's something beyond that, to quantum theories of consciousness, to different aspects of qualia, uh, to, um, uh, to uh, uh, dualism, and uh, ultimately idealism, where everything is consciousness or cosmic consciousness. Um, and each of these have different implications about the nature of uh, life after death, as well as the possibility of uploading our first-person consciousness into uh, another medium, which what I call the techno-optimists in Silicon Valley. A lot of people assume that that is, that is uh, in, in 100% uh, certainty. It's just a question of technology. And I would argue that's not the case. That it, 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 to, to, to upload your first-person uh, consciousness um, is a deep philosophical question. It's not a, it, I mean, it's also technological and it would take you know, thousands of years to be able to develop the technology, not decades or something. But even if you had the technology, you really have to discern what the nature of consciousness is before you can do that. So questions of, of, um, of uh, life after death, questions of, of, uh, uploading your consciousness and questions of AI, super AI consciousness. Those are three separate questions. Life after death, um, uh, uh, uploading your own consciousness into another medium and uh, attaining some kind of immortality and AI, super AI consciousness. Are they kind of, those are three separate questions. And I argue that they are the same question that you have, that, that all three of them are based, are founded on the same question, which is the, the nature of consciousness. You can't answer any of those. You can't assume that you know the answer to any of those unless you have a prior um, belief in a certain theory of consciousness. Robert had to go, but luckily he was gracious enough to answer some of the questions over email. Some listeners wanted to know, what are Robert's thoughts on the demarcation problem? Robert said this, the key test is repeatability, an important probative question. The next question comes from Abdullah Khalid. Could Robert tell us about his best interview experience? Robert says, Which of your children do you like best? If you picked a quote-unquote best, how would others feel? Another question viewers slash listeners asked was, Who would you interview of the past if you could? Robert says, Pascal. The next question comes from MJ McGovern. This one comes from the Theories of Everything Discord. I would be curious how Robert Kuhn splits his time between his activities. What are some of the more surprising things he's learned through his career? And if he has any advice for people who want to follow in his footsteps, like maybe Kurt. That reminded me, by the way, that I wanted to ask Robert Kuhn what advice he has for me, building theories of everything, as a combination of my quest to explicate theories, 
as well as to build a community around theories of everything, and as well as for me and the community to advance the state of theories of everything in general. Robert Kuhn said this, Pursue your passion. Closer to truth, its ideas, has been my lifelong passion. China, for it came about accidentally some 33 years ago, by the capriciousness of the world as it were, and it became a grafted-on passion. Both Closer to Truth and Closer to China are based on my deep desire to learn and to share what I've learned, the process as well as the content. My advice, keep doing what you're doing. Do what works best for you. Don't try to target demographics. Let me know your progress. All the best, Robert. Okay, that was a marathon, man. That's where we leave it. Robert, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. It's it's still a pleasure. And it's a bit surreal, although I'm by the end of it now, I've acclimated to it. But to see you, because when I was younger, before I even started Theories of Everything or a podcast, and I would watch your videos and I found them incredibly insightful. And I'm I'm fairly certain much of what I think has been unconsciously and somewhat consciously too, influenced by you and your show. So thank you so much for there's many people here in the chat that is saying that they love you and thank you as well. Great, Kurt. Enjoyed being here. Congratulations on Theory of Everything. I think it's a, it's a real contribution and uh, we're on this journey together. That's for sure, man. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Yeah.